This week on the 108 Podcast, Owning My Past with Danny from Washington State. My uh, father raised me, he was a Vietnam vet. Last thing he wanted to do was put us in the military because what he came back to didn't have any desire to go into policing or even uh, a trust or care for policing. For lack of a better description, I grew up poor white trash to a man who was a drug dealer and very violent. That was kind of the kind of the environment that we grew up in of just violence and chaos. One of my uncles, he's six foot seven, just a massive man, told me bawling his eyes out and apologized that he's sorry that he could protect me and never would because my dad would have actually killed him. The views and opinions expressed on the 108 podcast are those of the authors and guests individually. The 108 podcast is for entertainment purposes is only and is not affiliated with any entity, agency, or department. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, whenever and wherever you're listening. This is the 10A Podcast, episode 333, Owning My Past with my good friend, Danny, a police officer from Washington State. This episode is brought to you by Jiu-Jitsu 5 Folks, I want to tell you about Jiu-Jitsu 5 At Jiu-Jitsu 5 they believe training is a lifestyle. Their goal is to provide everything a police officer needs to not only become proficient in their control and defense skills, but also achieve all the physical and mental health benefits Jiu-Jitsu has to offer. And that's why they came out with the Jiu-Jitsu 5.0 app. It's the ultimate training tool for all law enforcement. Members get on-demand access to a huge library of techniques for the streets, grappling-based workouts, yoga, and monthly nutrition plans. Through the app, you also have 24-7 access to Jason, the founder of Jiu-Jitsu 5.0, for personalized training assistance. Jason is a black belt in Jiu-Jitsu and an 11-year law enforcement veteran. So go check out the Jiu-Jitsu 5.0 app in the App Store of your choosing, available on iPhone and Android. What's going on, everybody? Thanks for coming to hang out with me today. We got a big episode coming your way. We got my buddy Danny from Washington. Danny has an amazing story to share with you. He's been working in the Pacific Northwest for a long-ass time. That's not like a crack at his age or anything, but he's been there for a while. He knows a thing or two. He's got plenty of insight to teach you regarding the job, and more importantly, he's going to tell you about his story growing up and how it changed his outlook on life. We are then going to wrap up with my good friend, Captain Tom Rizzo, doing a rendition of the Teddy Roosevelt speech, The Man in the Arena, a speech that I love. I have it in my bedroom here, framed, and uh, it's it's very important, and um, I think you guys enjoy that. And finally, I will be doing my yearly transition of reading the officer down names in memory of those brave men and women that we have lost from the year 2022. But before we get into that, I just want to talk briefly about a few of the topics or themes that Danny's going to discuss in our episode. First things first is the fact that you are not your past, and that's going to be an overall theme for this episode. What I mean by that is that bad shit happens to people, but you do not have to use that as an excuse to do shitty things in the present or the future. How many times do you hear the story of a person that was raised by alcoholics or drug addicts becoming an alcoholic or drug addict, or the person who was abused as a kid ends up abusing their kids, or the officer who had a shitty FTO and then becomes a shitty FTO or a supervisor? It's... I mean, it's kind of a trend that we've seen all too often, and it's an easy decision for someone to make. After all, if it was done to me, I should be able to do it to other people. Or you can take that pain and choose a dangerous coping mechanism to numb yourself from the pain that you had experienced. A lot of substance abuse issues come from these terrible past occurrences. 
But what I'm here to tell you today is that you don't have to adopt any of that sadness, negativity, or anything, and then transform it into uh, inflicting pain to other people. Instead, you can use that knowledge of that pain and what it feels like to make sure that no one ever feels that same pain. Similarly, what if you have fucked up? What if you have done some terrible things? We've all screwed up. We've all done bad things, things we regret, and things that we've known that they aren't the wisest. Now, guess what? Even with that fact, now, barring we're talking anything, something terribly heinous or egregious, uh, even some criminal things you can come back from, but, you know, we're talking, like, the really bad stuff. You can make amends for your fuck-ups. You don't have to keep living in your past. You can move past your story into a better future. Which, by the way, talking about that makes me want to recommend to you guys an amazing book that you guys need to check out. It's called Owning Your Past and Changing Your Future by Dr. John Deloney. It's an amazing book. I'm listening to it right now. You're going to want to check it out. It really talks about overcoming bad things that have happened to you or just things that have happened to you. Not even bad things, just things that have happened to you. Now, the next topic I want to talk to you about is keeping an open mind. I'm going to move past this one pretty quick. We've talked about it before, but we bring it up about how we bring our own prejudices to the job and to our calls for service. Now, I'm not talking about skin color, things like that. I'm talking about preconceived notions about humans in general. Police officers see things in a very black and white way. We play in the boundaries of the box. We don't really think outside the box or blur the lines any. And while I'm not saying like, I'm not trying to encourage you to go out and kind of stretch things to make things work and things like that. No, that's not what I'm talking about at all. Um, No reason to stretch elements of crimes to fit your case or falsify documents. That's not what I'm talking about. So I just want to kind of clear that out. You should definitely consider thinking outside the box when it comes to dealing with people and interacting with your community. That's really what I'm talking about. Like, not everything has to be cut and dry. It's not just perpetrator and officer. It's not just suspect and officer. It is person and person. I really want you to think about that. In a few weeks, uh, I have an episode coming out where we have a deputy from Arizona who uses skateboarding as a way to community police and how to kind of get in with the, the youth of today. It's pretty remarkable. Now, we don't have to get lost in this whole coffee with a cop culture or uh, things like that. You know, we're going to talk about it in that episode. Uh, I think it's going to be in about two weeks now. We can do other things like skateboarding. If, if you, ha- you had skills, you had purpose, you had drive, you had enjoyment, and you had uh, things you liked that you had before you came to the job, right? So why not use those skills and those interests to facilitate something uh, better? We can be original in our thoughts and ideas. It goes back to what I've said a long time ago. The way we always do things will lead to absolutely no change. And cops hate two things. They hate the way things are, and they hate change. What I'm saying is stop being so narrow-minded. Be the change you want to see in the world. And finally, the last thing I want to bring up with you today before we bring on Danny is the idea of loving your job, loving your career. When we get hired, we are asked, why do we want to be police officers? And what did you say? Probably, what, 9 million, 1,000, all the police officer applicants that have ever come through a hiring process has said, you said you wanted a career that would serve your community, that mattered, and that you wanted to help people. Those are probably the two Captain America responses we always say. Um, And they always tell you, oh, don't say you want to help people. But at the end of the day, that's why you want to do it. Oh, no, because I want to be a cop because I want a chronic back pain and to wear an uncomfortable uniform and a car that doesn't work. No, no one's going to say that shit, right? We do it because, one, it's good job security. And two, we actually do want to help people. 
And when you answer that question, you're going to throw around the words passion. You're going to throw around calling. You're probably going to even say that to your friends and you're going to say it to yourself, right? This is what I meant to do. Like, like, uh, John Locke in lost, right? I'm meant to do this. This is, this is it. Right. But have you looked around social media? Have you listened to people in squad rooms? Have you, you know, kind of scratched your head and went, this is what you were so passionate about. Now, I have no doubt that you folks at one time were inspired and motivated to be amazing law enforcement officers. But what happened to you? If I were your boss and I sat you down and I asked you legitimately, why do you still want to be a cop? What would you say? If you were honest, I'm sure an overwhelming majority of you would say that you're still a cop because of the pay and the benefits above all else, especially in the last few years, that your calling, your passion is actually to support your family. Or maybe you still do love the job despite everything that's happened and that's been going on for several years. Maybe this is an amazing job and you love it. And hey, you know what? For everyone that says that, I am so happy to hear it. We need more of you in the job. But I think, at least the way social media portrays it, so many of you are here for a paycheck. So how do we rekindle that fire, that passion, that burning desire, which I feel like I just said the words to a Backstreet Boys song, and I apologize for that. Well, it should have never really gone away. And it can, your focus can change, your your why can, your why never changes. That's something that I've learned. Your why never changes. It may shift, it may mold a little bit, but it never really changes. But I think it's time to kind of look within and see what's really going on. Simon Sinek says that working hard for something you don't care about is called stress. And working hard for something you do care about is called passion. So with that in mind, where are you? What is it? Is law enforcement still your passion? Now I'm going to be honest here. For me, in October 2021, when I when I hung it up, law enforcement was no longer my passion. I didn't realize that at the time. Actually, I think I just clicked with it uh, a few weeks ago when I was putting this episode together, when I was first writing this part. It's just not there. That passion, what I thought was passion for law enforcement and for helping the community, is not there. And even yesterday, I was sitting at work and I had thoughts to myself if I wanted to try it again or if I wanted to go to a different agency and suit up and whatever. And it's not there for me. It's just not. Helping people is my passion. And that's why I'm going back to school for psychology so I can help people. But public safety and all the ups and downs and hoops you have to jump through that just wasn't my passion anymore. I'm still I'm still in public safety, right? So I'm still helping people, but being on the immediate front lines in person just wasn't there for me. And I don't think anybody who comes to terms with that is bad. You know, I'm probably self like self-soothing with this, but you know, you have a purpose, you have a passion, you have something you want to do and something that fills your cup. You have to figure out what it is you, again you have to fill your cup before you can worry about other people so if it doesn't serve you it doesn't serve you and you have to go on from that so as we dive into the rest of the episode think to yourself are you passionate about what you do or are you stressed by what you do and do you have to reignite that fire or is it out altogether now i don't want to encourage people to leave the job if they want to stay i really hope that there's a lot of you listening going no i still love this job It can be a pain in the balls, but I still love this job. But I don't want people to stay just because they think they have to for the pay, for the benefits, because at one point you said it was your calling and your purpose. Listen, I've always 
I don't even want to say always. There was a point in my life when I realized I didn't want to make money for other people. I didn't want that to be my job. I wanted to do something with a higher purpose, right? So I left the job I was working in. I worked for a, a parking garage for the, the county government. And, I mean, I was a supervisor at one point. They demoted me, so I'm sure that put a couple bees in my bonnet. But I realized, like, this is not what I want to do. I want to do something more important, something that, quote-unquote, matters. So I went and... I applied to a hospital. I was going to work um, registration at a hospital in hopes to go up from there or something like that. I did the interview and I realized, oh no, I'm just a debt collector and I didn't want to do that. So I, I didn't take that job. And I ended up working a few dead end jobs in between. And I, I talked about this in previous podcasts that either I was on or, or that I've recorded. And I was reading a book and it was written by a former CIA operative. And he was saying how he was a foreign affairs professor at Johns, John Hopkins University. And I was like, oh, that's the thing. And I looked into it and I found that University of Florida was, uh, they had a foreign affairs or foreign relations major. And I was like, oh, I could totally do this. I could go be a diplomat. Uh, in the meantime, I could work for the Peace Corps. I could do all these things to help people, something of, of higher value in, in, in my eyes. Um, not to, you know, there's, there's value in everything, but for me, I wanted something of higher value and I thought that would work out. Skip ahead, skip ahead, skip ahead. I ended up becoming a police officer, right? So that being said, I've always wanted that higher purpose. I didn't want to just make money. Um, now here in my thirties, you know, money's kind of a, an important thing, but the why is still there. I still want a higher purpose. If I wanted to go be a banker, I don't have the math skills for it, but if I wanted to go be a banker, I can make a lot of money. The money doesn't drive me. The purpose drives me. So that's why I'm looking in psychology. That's why I'm going that way because I want to help people. And more importantly, I want to help those that help people. So I want to help police officers, dispatchers, firefighters, nurses, teachers, like the, that, the underserved communities, you know, because I feel like the first responders and, and helping professions need it more. So that... That all being said, I feel like I took a long way around. I told you how the clock is made when you asked me what time it was. You don't have to stay just because you think you have to. Figure out what your true why is, what your true purpose is, and what you're really passionate about, and go from that. Now again, law enforcement may be that for you, and that's perfect. That's amazing. I just want people to be... I want people to be smart. I want people to take care of themselves, to be healthy, and to find joy in their daily lives. It is there, I promise. So... Again, if you really believe that law enforcement is your passion, you, you just got to kind of clear your focus a little bit. Wipe, wipe, the, wipe the smudge off your glasses of life and keep going from there. But enough for me. Let's go ahead and bring on my buddy Danny. Danny, again, is a police officer from the state of Washington. He has a ex very extensive and impressive work resume, but more importantly, he is an amazing human being. So here we go. Check it out. Owning my past here on the 10-8 Podcast. <laughs> Right here we are. We've got my buddy, my new buddy, Danny. Super happy to have you on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Charlie. How are you, bud? Not too bad. Not too bad. It, it's always my recording days have been weird since I've gone to night shift because I have to line it up with when I wake up and things like that. So coming off of a night shift and then waking up. I mean, this is usually what I do, but 
now, you know, gotta gotta kind of wake up and get cognitively available. So besides that, we're doing pretty good. I completely understand that, but we're out on the West Coast, so we could have even started a little later for you. That's true. That is true. And then it then it gets to that weird like work life balance. Like, okay, how much can I inconvenience my family <laughs> for this? You know, so uh, that's that's just where it gets kind of funky. But luckily, you know, uh, support in law enforcement in in this little uh circus that i have going on here that's probably the most important thing um so i mean it's working out it's working out pretty good and the thing with the time zones always gets me too because we kind of had that little uh snafu earlier today typically i'll 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 message someone on the west coast that's going to be on the show and i'll be like all right i'm gonna do four o'clock that's typically when i do and then I never specify East Coast or West Coast time. So then I'm sitting here at 4 o'clock and they're like, oh, no, I'll be there in three hours. I'm like, oh, what am I going to be doing over here for three hours? Yeah, and I I forgot. I give myself usually a half hour to get this set up since it was the first time that I've ever done anything like this. And so I had set my calendar for 1230 and I was like, ah, then I realized I was off a half hour. Ah, that's – I mean that's nothing compared to what I've – one week I had – uh, two West Coast guests in a row, and both of us, both times, got the time zones wrong. So, I mean, it's just, it's the nature of the beast, unfortunately. But, all that being said, we are here now, and I'm super excited to talk to you. Um, before we get too deep into everything, let's go ahead and have you introduce yourself. Tell us who you are, where you're from, what you do, and we'll go from there. Uh, I'm Danny. I uh, am from Washington State, out on the West Coast, as we said. Uh, I've been a police officer for 24 years now. Um, grew up in Washington. Uh, I do travel a lot, though, and enjoy that. But yeah, that's basically who I am. Okay. Um, I, I was thinking about when you said it. I think you might be the first guest I've had from Washington State. I've had I know I've had Oregon something. So so we're we're crossing something off the uh, podcast bucket list. So that's pretty cool. So in your time on the job, what have you what have you done? Uh, to kind of get an idea of what your experience is like. Uh, what have I done? Uh, so I started patrol. I've worked the street for 14 years before I left it. Uh, during the time of working the street, uh, I worked outside of patrol. I worked as a narcotics canine handler. So I worked in the drug field for quite a while. Uh, I've worked gangs. I've worked uh, auto theft uh, detection unit, anti-crime team, did some undercover work for a while. And then worked investigations, uh, mostly property crimes, but I ranged from property crimes all the way up to homicides uh, for the fact I was an arson investigator. So if the arson involved a homicide, then I would take those cases as well. Okay. Okay. And then leading up to law enforcement, did you have any kind of military experience or law enforcement in your family? I know we're going to talk about kind of your upbringing. That's kind of the the soup and you know all the all the good things that we're doing for this episode but did you have any kind of lead into that uh i didn't i actually uh so my uh father who raised me uh he was vietnam vet and last thing he wanted to do was put us in military because what he came back to uh and i don't know if that's why he's kind of messed up in the head or not from what he experienced but no i really uh Till about 16, 17-ish, I uh, didn't have any desire to go into policing or even uh, a trust or care for policing. Yeah. And so a couple – the theme for the episode is obviously going to be about upbringing and, and things such as that. And I've noticed uh, in a lot of conversations with, with not similar stories but, but 
ballpark similar stories. Uh, that's kind of the case. Like, you know, if, if you kind of had like a negative upbringing or kind of a negative backstory, so to speak, policing is not on the, on the forefront. And yet I've talked to many people who have come up from kind of similar situations who, you know, didn't respect the police, either feared the police or had negative interactions with the police. But something changes probably, I would say in their, in their teens where they switch and make that and make that jump. But let's go ahead and start talking about your backstory and kind of where you came from and how that paved the way for who you are today. Because a lot of times it's great when we get to meet law enforcement officers, either in person, through the podcast, whatever it might be. And the most important thing I think is their story and how we can relate to that. And, and, you know, when you meet someone in a uniform, that's it, right? That's, that's very, uh, two dimensional, but there's so much more that goes into that story. So, um, why don't you start by telling us where you grew up and we'll kind of just go from there. I grew up in the Puget Sound, Seattle region. I don't want to give too specific aware because uh, there's still some family members that are alive. And uh, one, they're still not happy that I'm in law enforcement to begin with. But for lack of a better description, I grew up poor white trash to a man who was a drug dealer and a very violent individual. And so um, that's kind of what we were exposed to. I have uh, two younger siblings uh, and then a way younger sister. She's, in fact, uh, probably the same. Well, she is about the same age as my oldest son. Um, and so uh, me and my middle brother are the closest. But, yeah, it was just uh, kind of chaos. I don't know if you want me to share some stories of kind of. Yeah, we can we can kind of dive into that. Sure. OK, uh, so one of the things that I uh and I'm learning to share more with a, a lot of therapy that I've been through, because uh, unfortunately, you know, when you go through this traumatic events as a child and then you become a police officer and exposed to a lot of trauma, it catches up with you. Uh, so I'm learning to share a little more. So unfortunately, my dad uh, not only dealt drugs, but used drugs. So for he would call them his pleasure beatings. And he wanted tough boys. So uh, he'd do a little dope and then strip us down naked and make us run back and forth in front of him. As we run back and forth in front of him, he'd snap us with a towel. Uh, if we cry from that towel, he'd get the towel wet. Uh, if we cry from the wet towel, he would then uh, remove the, we just remember the big belt, you know, we'd get the big thick belt. Uh, and if we cried from that as a result, then we get a belt buckle and uh, he had one of those big cowboy belt buckles on it. So, you know, it, it had a lot, a lot to it when it came around on you. And unfortunately, if we cried because of that, then he just beat the hell out of us until we stopped crying. And um, something hard to do when you're one, a kid, and then two, uh, when you have a massive man that's just beating on you. So uh, so that was his fun beatings. Uh, of course, if he felt we did wrong, there was a lot of other uh, just rage beatings and so forth. Um, so that was kind of the kind of the environment that we grew up in of just violence and chaos. When you grow up in that environment, I mean, that's your most pivotal time for trust, for building relationships, things like that. And where was, I don't want to, I don't want to ask questions that you don't want to or can't answer, but 
We'll go ahead and ask, and we'll go from there. Okay, okay. Um, where you know, where was the, where was the rest of your family during all that, and how was there any? Obviously, there was no intervention, but you know, what what was all that like, and what was your feeling towards this whole thing going on here? So, uh, my mom, uh, she was just as violent. Uh, uh, obviously, didn't impact us as much. Uh, like me and my brother were talking about a story the other time, day, the last time she had. Uh, beat us pretty good. Um, but, uh, you know, she always claimed she was also the victim. She's still a victim in her life. And that's part of the reason, you know, I don't want to identify myself because uh, just in a video that I did for work talking about growing up poor and um, and uh, abused without details, I mean, she absolutely lost it. Um, I've been asked to write a book about different details and um, do a interview for a local uh, paper or a reporter here. Um, and I shared that with her and she got so upset and called one of my brothers and um, her brother actually called me and laughed and said, just do it. So that's part of the reason we're here today, mm-hmm. uh, you know, learning to do that. But again, I just don't want to make her a victim. Uh, secondly, uh, she had, uh, she grew up in a large family um uh has four brothers uh in fact one of my uncles last year um he's six foot seven uh just a massive man 76 years old uh came up at the barbecue that we're at at my brother's and uh told me how proud he was of me uh coming to where i was as he was bawling his eyes out and then apologized to me that He's sorry that he couldn't protect me and never would because my dad would have actually killed him. Mm. And uh, that was something real hard for my wife to see because many of my brothers laugh about kind of what we grew up in. Just that's a way of coping and dealing with it. But when she sees a uh, because your question that you asked is something that uh, my wife's asked me several times. Why didn't anybody protect you? And they couldn't because honestly, uh, my dad would have killed them. One of my uncles had stabbed my dad one day and uh, my brother and I watched uh, my dad beat him almost to death and left him laying in a gurgle of blood. Uh, There were several occasions growing up that uh, we witnessed our dad almost beat somebody to death. And uh, we're not talking, you know, and a lot of people see fights and stuff, but he was just such a violent man. I mean, he would not stop and just leave people laying there. And so there was a lot of people that were massive afraid of him. You kind of touched on it when you were, when you were first describing your dad. Do you think that was impacted by his time in Vietnam? Or was do you think that was something that he grew up with to, to come to know as normal? Or do you think it's maybe a mixture of both? Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Probably a little bit of both. Uh, it sounded like he was pretty violent even growing up. Uh, he was uh, ordered to go to prison or Vietnam was his choice that he was mm. given. This is a story that he shares. Um, but I don't know of anybody else in his family that were necessarily <clears throat> super violent to the kids. I mean, we don't know his family or that, excuse me, that side of the family that well, uh, we're always kept separate from it. So, so I, truthfully, I don't know a lot about that. Uh, could be the drugs that he's using, you know, a, a whole variety of things, but, mm-hmm. uh, he was pretty sadistic and he enjoyed violence. When this was going on for you, I mean, obviously I'm sure it was your entire childhood, but was there a time growing up when it stopped? Like as you kind of grew up to be 
uh, teenager and kind of more of a formidable quote unquote opponent, or did it continue as you kind of got older? Uh, I continued my, uh, in fact, in high school, uh, one of my friends who we won't identify in here, uh, who was actually staying with me because I, I lived out in a shed. We had a little trailer that we lived in growing up when they had my sister, I got moved out to a shed outside. So one of my friends stayed with us. He ultimately goes on to be a world-class fighter. Um, but my dad didn't care if you lived in his house or you were at his house, um, you were going to be exposed to it. And I remember one incident that I hit him so hard that I knocked a tooth out. Uh, he just spit it in my face and laughed and told me that didn't hurt as he's beating me and my friend at the same time on the couch. And, you know, even though we were teenage boys, we still couldn't do anything. Uh, then my younger brother hit him with a baseball bat, which caused him to turn his attention. And uh, all three of us ran out of the house at that point. And uh, t typically we would not come back for a week or two weeks uh, because if we did, we knew what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and oh, to answer your question, though, yeah. when it finally stopped, I guess, is when I moved out of the house. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then my younger sister, like I said, she's the same age as my oldest son. She actually has this falsity that my dad was a great man uh, for the simple fact of uh, I'm smaller because it turned out I found out I wasn't his kid. I thought I always got beat worse than my siblings. Uh, my siblings were abused quite a bit as well, uh, but I always seemed to be getting wor beat worse. And uh, I just figured it was because I was the oldest. But uh, when we all got bigger and moved out of the house, uh, we told him that he ever touched her that I don't know necessarily it's a good thing being a police officer but again I grew up in it we told him we'd kill him if we he touched her and he knew by that time uh one of my brothers is 6'2 245 the other one's 6'3 about 250 uh very big individuals so I I think that he knew it was a time that he didn't touch anybody anymore yeah. And, you know, you say, you know, it's not it's not good to mention being a police officer or whatever, but I think there's a point in that protection realm with our minds where it's like, it doesn't matter what I do for a living. You you come after, you know, someone that I want to protect. It's it's kind of that thing. And it's it gets primal at that point. So, you know, it, I, I don't think anyone listening would say otherwise. I just saw a friend of mine post on Instagram some news story where... Uh, a boyfriend killed his girlfriend's daughter and all this like terribleness. And he basically yeah. said, if something like that were to even happen, like I'd be John wick, yeah. you know, it's just, yeah. it, so oh, yeah. you, you get primal that, that flips that switch flips. And it's like, I, I can't even be stopped. Yeah. So trust me, I understand. So my brother and I had a conversation about that the other day. I learned to control that switch a long time ago. And uh, I've spent a lifetime trying to help one of my brothers control it. And he had an incident just the other day in his mid-40s. And he owns his own business. And uh, he was going to get an altercation. And he's like, all I could do is think in your, my head of you pointing all this stuff out to me to control that, control that rage. And uh, so I'm glad that he's finally learning to control it. Uh, I learned early on because of what I wanted to go into. And so uh, there's a point in my life when I actually stopped fighting. Uh, we fought a lot growing up. Um, there's a point in my life where I stopped fighting um, and avoided it at all costs to, to go into the profession that I'm in. And, and I was kind of going to segue into that you know when you grow up in an abusive household and you know i've had people i've talked to people i've cared about 
tell me stories about it. And to the point where like they've blacked it all out. Like they don't remember their, their upbringing. You ask them like, you know, we'll, we'll be gathered around the table. We'll talk, talk about like, Oh, when I was in high school, when I was in elementary school and they're like, I don't remember any of that. It's all blacked out just because of everything that was going on at home. They just, their, their mind stopped at all. But so many times in those cases to cope with those terrible things, they go to terrible things themselves. Either they are also violent, they turn to drugs and alcohol, they turn to all these different things to kind of go through, you know, to kind of deal with it as, a, as an adult. But you, did you, ha- you said that you kind of went away from fighting to, to go for law enforcement. Where was that decision that, hey, I'm going to go on the straight and narrow, and then up until that point, was there anything other than uh, the rage you were talking about in the fighting, or was there kind of more to that? Um and then, so yeah, uh, when did you make the decision to go okay. law enforcement and all that? Um, so, so I'm going to back up a little bit on mm-hmm. something key that you said there. Uh, like last weekend, we had watched, uh, uh, I follow Snoop Dogg on Instagram, and we watched uh, two women fighting uh, in a Walmart. I block out a, a ton of my childhood. I don't remember most of it. Uh, but you have flashbacks, you know. Uh, flashbacks are very real, uh, not only for uh, stuff that I've encountered in law enforcement uh, to my, my personal life, but uh, you're exactly right. We blocked out uh, so much. And just watching that event, it triggered some stuff. And, uh, you know, so it led my wife and I down a deep conversation of, uh, you know, because she's still even after we've been together 15 years, she still can't believe that new stories pop up constantly uh, around that. But uh, to answer your question, so kind of what made me turn on law enforcement is, uh, uh, well, one, I hated my father so much. I wanted to be the opposite of him. I mean, everything that motivated me to be the opposite of him. I brought one of my friends home who was Vietnamese when I was younger, and uh, I got the hell beat out of me for it uh, because he was racist and so forth. And uh, in fact, it caused me to be more open-minded to all different people because, you know, just again, I wanted to be the complete opposite of him. But uh, I think I and I don't remember the exact age uh, between 15 to 17. Uh, I had a friend of mine. Uh, he was black. And unfortunately, uh, this rich white kid had beat him up uh, just because he was black. And so my friend didn't know how to fight. I mean, and I don't mean any disrespect to him. And he'll tell you the same thing to this day. Uh, he was just a dork. Right. And that set me into uh, a, a, a really upset that uh, somebody could do that to another person just because of the color of their skin. So I went and beat the dude up. So, of course, 911 police are called, and me and my friend are the two that wind up in handcuffs because uh, growing up in the 70s and 80s and early 90s, cops weren't nice to poor people. And they weren't necessarily nice to my friends of color. So they looked at us as we were the bad guys. Uh, we're sitting there in handcuffs, and um, th- there was an older cop that was just being an asshole to uh, – sorry. my No, no, you're so, good. Being a, a complete – horrible person to my friend and I and my friend just got beat up because of the color of his skin it was absolutely unacceptable so I was running my mouth like a lot of kids do the there was a younger car up there that was his cover and he's like if you don't like it do something about it well the way he says that I think he wants to fight and I'm like oh tough guy you're gonna beat up a kid or what and he's like no 
we hate your dad because we know what he does. We, you guys, you know, because we would protect our dad. If we didn't protect our dad, we knew what was coming. Mm -hmm. You know, we'd blame our brothers. Oh, it's my brother that gave me all these bruises. Oh, it's sports that did all this stuff. You know, um, and, and they knew that it was coming from somewhere else. But, you know, back then, they didn't deal with a lot of stuff. And so uh, I tell him, oh, tough, uh, you're going to beat up a kid. And he's like, no. He goes, what I'm telling you is you hate your dad so much. You just beat up this other guy to protect this kid. Do you understand that's what policing is, is they try to protect people that need protecting like yourself and your friend. And then he made a, a key comment. He says, if you don't like the way cops treat somebody, why don't you be a cop and treat people the way you think they should be treated? And uh, that's got my mind turning at that point. And that's when, uh, you know, I started my path and uh, journey to uh, be a police officer where now I've been one 24 years later. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And that, I mean, that's, there's a couple things to take away from that. I mean, obviously it was a time difference, right? You know, the, the generational gap, unfortunately, things are different. My dad was a cop in the eighties and nineties and I think in the seventies as well. So he, you know, he was probably part of the problem more than, you know, I, I want to give him credit for it. But, um, yeah. you know, that generation, you know, unfortunately can't go back and change it. But I like that pivotal moment where, where the younger police officer told it to you and it kind of clued into what you needed to do with your life. And also to the, I want to go back to the fact of like you protecting your father, even though you hated him, despised him, he did all these terrible things to you. I think there's a lot of times when we work, in the, in the streets. And, you know, I've, I worked in a, in an inner city and I remember just the, the punks that would come out when we're arresting the drug dealer, you know, or, or the, the, the wife or girlfriend or side piece, whatever it is, you know, the guys. And I always, I remember, I remember one specific story where this chick got beat so bad by her significant other drug dealer with tattoos all over his face and everything. He took a full couple gallon bucket of, like lawn fertilizer, like for weeds, weed eater and hit her over the head with it and just knocked the, the ever living sense out of her. And she would not press charges on him. And I was like, yeah. how? I was like, I was looking at the guy's mugshot. I was like, how do you look at a guy with all these tattoos on his face and go, yes, I want to defend him. But it's something we don't always think about. And it's the fact that you have to defend them. You have to not protect or you have to not prosecute or whatever, because you know that the moment they get out, it's coming back tenfold on you. So, and even and even like if you arrest, let's say the 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 street punk, you know, the one that's running dope on you or whatever, and if he doesn't give you a hard time, then when he gets out, his people are gonna think that he's a snitch, he's whatever. So I, I ju I'm just thinking about all these different problems I had on the street, and it's like it's all making sense now when I think about it in that context. Yeah, and, and you're hitting key on the head there. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, a survival mode that you have to go into. And I didn't care to protect him. They could have thrown him away the key and locked him away forever. Right. But uh, unfortunately, that wasn't going to happen. And you knew that, uh, like you said, he's going to be back at some time. Uh, and I share with you, I also work in a larger city as well. So I have had a lot of uh, experience over my 24-year career uh, with a variety of things. Um, and I like to think that... Uh, well, I think my department, uh, the awards that I've won over the years, and more importantly, just the community that I brought trust to uh, are a real recognition of 
what I've done, but I don't would not have been able to do that stuff. Uh, when my dad died in 2012, he apologizes for what he's done to me. And I tell him, you don't have to apologize because my hatred of you made me a better father, a better man, a better person. It led me to policing ultimately. And um, when I first started policing in the late 90s, uh, like you said, there was still a lot of those old school people here. And um, I've been very successful because I have that understanding of why that person's not doing this, why this looks like this. Uh, when I was working uh, with my narcotics canine, uh, I'd get massive amounts of drugs and I'd have other officers that were far more experienced in policing than I would come up and they would be absolutely frustrated that they'd point at a car and tell me, I just stopped that doper car there. How do you always get these big loads of drugs? Well, I know what to look for. My dad was a drug dealer. Mm -hmm. And typically you see a lot of police officers that assume poor is associated with crime. And that's what I grew up in. And I would tell them, I'd laugh and say, no, you just stopped some poor dude. That's all you stopped. Secondly, if they do have drugs, they have a user amount. Mm -hmm. That's not my goal here. My goal was to take care of the guys that were putting the product on the street. But if you don't have that experience and that understanding, it, it's hard sometimes for people to go outside of that box, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a lot about perspective. It's a lot about understanding. Um, where where I worked, there was there was it, it, we lived. Well, they lived the, the the citizens I served well below the poverty line, and it was predominantly African American. But there was you know there was the the poor white folk too, and you know you you kind of you see them all, and and you I I did not grow up in any kind of lap of luxury at all. There were many times that you know my parents had to scrounge things together to make things work and things like that, but. De my my perspective of it was so much different than what I would walk into, walk into these uh, housing projects and, and look around and see what's going on and, and seeing how other folks live. And, you know, it was very hard to understand at first. And if you didn't grow up in it, and that's one of the greatest things about policing is that it brings people from all different walks of life, all different amounts of experience and things. Um, so if you didn't experience, you wouldn't know. But the, the fact of having someone that did understand that I remember getting into an argument with a sergeant of mine. Not an argument, just a constructive conversation about uh, we were we were working this um, like a block party type thing, and there was an outdoor bar, and the there was a dad, and then there was a child standing over the fence that would separate the bar from the street, and uh, my my sergeant wanted me to first we thought we had a child neglect case, and I was like not at all, but basically the 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 son and the dad were out at this block party or whatever, the dad went into the bar, but he wasn't in the bar. He was just on bar ground where the sun wasn't allowed. And they were still, you know, looking at whatever was on the street and like, they were still bonding, you know? And my Sergeant couldn't understand that. He thought, Oh, the dad's a deadbeat, blah, blah. I'm like, not at all. I was like, I did that many times with my father. This is perfectly fine. But again, if you don't have that perspective, you don't understand it. So even when you're talking about your partners and they would, you know, go to different situations and not understand what was going on. It's good that you were able to point out things and be like, no, you just stopped a poor dude. There was nothing criminal going on there just because they, what they're doing looks different. Doesn't mean it's wrong. 
Yeah, 100%. You know, another example of uh, uh, a friend of mine that we're in detectives together, and this is recently, you know, within the last five years even, and uh, he would get so frustrated at me because uh, I worked uh, off duty at uh, Fred Meyer, Walmart, whatever. Um, and to be honest with you, uh, if you're stealing food, uh, when I caught you, I would actually bring you back in the store and pay for it. And this is what I tell you. I'd say, hey, man, do me a solid. If you need food, you come see me. You don't steal it. Uh, you know, I don't have respect for I mean, there's other ways to get food besides steal it. But if you're that hungry, you're stealing only food, uh, I'm going to help somebody out. And it would he would get so mad about that. And, uh, you know, he shared with me that he grew up poor, too. But, but it's all in, like you were saying, uh, perspective. He was poor for the area that he grew up in because he grew up in a very rich area. And so uh, one of the things that I shared with him, I said uh, two things. One, I've eaten out of garbage cans uh, several times. I loved school for two reasons. One, I knew I wasn't getting beat all the time or all day long. And two, I knew I was getting food. But I'd sit next to the garbage cans at school with my backpack. And uh, somebody told me I wasn't stealing uh, food out of the garbage can because you can't steal food out of the garbage can. But uh, I used to take food out of the garbage can to take home to my siblings and feed. Summer sucked. I mean, there was long periods of, uh, you know, you absolutely being hungry and so forth. And uh, I remember an incident that, you know, we were starving and hadn't eaten in a while and we had butter and mayo. So we ate that to try to make our hunger pains go away. And of course, that was far worse than the hunger pains with the the greasy skids and stomach aches that we had for a while. But uh, so I have that experience to know what it's like to actually be starving. Um, so, you know what? I make good money if I can get some people some food. Uh, but again, it's that whole perspective of what you grew up in, what you've experienced in life, you know, that really leads you to where you're at. Yeah. I, I was thinking about this one interaction I had. There was a, there was a homeless gentleman that used to, live where I worked. He was always in my beat. And first time I worked, first time I dealt with him, he was blackout drunk fighting. And I was like, fuck this guy. I was so, I was so pissed at this guy. Um, just because I'd never met him before. And here he is fighting with me. Right. The next day he's out on the street. I think he got arrested again for trespassing order because he was blackout drunk. He didn't realize he got trespassed from where we had arrested him. So he got arrested again. And he's like, Hey, how you doing? Like totally different person. And I was like, I, I was like, I was, I held a grudge. I did, you know, I'm human. And I was like, man. And then I like, I sit down next to him or, you know, stand next to him and talk to him. I'm like, do you know what you did yesterday? And I tell him, he goes, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Ended up building up a relationship with him to the point where like, we knew each other by first name. You know, we'd talk, we'd BS. I'd see him on the corner and be like, Hey man, listen, my captain just drove by. I'm supposed to arrest you. I don't want to arrest you. Just go a block over and get out of his line of sight. Okay. Things like that. But he was the, the neighborhood drunk, you know, he would always be drunk and cause a problem one way or another. There was one point, well, I mean, he would get himself into precarious situations, which, I mean, you, you can lead a horse to water, you can't make him drink. He would get knives pulled on him, we almost shot him once because he had a knife, like, just terrible things. But one time, so he would always get trespassed from all the places around the city. One time, he goes through this, um, like, outdoor shopping mall, and because it's Florida and you can do that, and... um the security there is like, hey, uh, he's trespassing, and get rid of him, arrest him. And I look at him, and he's carrying a box of pizza and a Coke. And I'm like, hold on a second, something seems different here. I'm like, I'm like, you know, I won't use his name, but I was like, hey man, what are you, what are you doing? You got a pizza? You got a Coke? He's like, listen, 
I know I'm going to be homeless the rest of my life. I just, I, I know I am, but I don't need to be a homeless drunk in jail all the time. And I'm like, that's frick. Like, I, I wanted to hug him. Like, I was like, this is amazing. He's like, he's like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be better, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, you know what? You get a pass. Like, this is, you know, and, and I, I hook him up. Or I don't hook him up, but I get him in my car. I take him somewhere where he's not bothering the security guard. And I tell my sergeant what I did. I'm like, if this guy's literally trying to change his life to the best that he can, I'm not going to impede on that, right? Because what's he going to do? Go in jail and come back out, and then that coke he had is going to go be a, a you know, 24-pack of Natty Daddy or whatever it might not be. And so that's just kind of the idea of, like, that security guard was so fixated that he's that homeless drunk, he's just the problem, blah, 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 and maybe that's why he is a security guard. I don't know. Uh, shout out to my security guard buddies. But the fact is, like, you never know what's going on. And if you can give that guy or girl that you're interacting with like a little leeway, like buying them food, like you don't know what they're doing. And I've seen people where they go into Walmart or whatever it might be. And they, they, they stockpile a whole bunch of stuff just to resell it or whatever it might be. Um, but if they're legitimately just trying to buy food or diapers or whatever it might be, you don't have to just be a dick and, and I hook them up. You know, if there's, if there's more to the story, it's the human aspect of the job as well. So you touched on a couple things there. I'm going to try to remember everything because mm-hmm. I'm a little older, so I forget. <laughs> uh, first thing is I actually teach some classes. And one of the things that I teach is stop being a dick as a cop. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to stand there with your arms closed. You don't have to stand or cross. You don't have to stand there scowling at people. You can talk to people. You can interact with people. You can hug people. You can take pictures with people. This is all stuff I've done my whole career. You're going to have these experts that argue, well, officer safety. Well, I'll tell you what we need to do is we need to train our cops better to physically take care of themselves. And when I say that is there's a lack of training uh, for not uh, just physical fitness, but uh, whether it's jujitsu, whatever self-defense tactics you you, you need. Um, you can be nice to somebody and maybe this is just from me fighting as long as I can remember as a kid and continuing this. But you can be nice to somebody, but when you have to take care of business, you can transition mm-hmm. very quickly. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing that I'll throw out there. Earlier, you said, too, that somebody had got under your skin a little bit when you were arresting them because of some stuff. Uh, I challenge all my young officers. I tell them this is stop taking this stuff personally because it is not about you Mm -hmm. okay look at that badge that's over your heart look at that police patch that you're wearing they are not fighting you because they know you they're fighting you to get away Mm -hmm. they're fighting you because they're fighting a system they're making comments to you they're not making personal comments to you so stop taking that personal now have i used force on my career a hundred percent i've used a lot of force over my career and Mm -hmm. Even with people that I use force with is because I don't have that ego in that belief that they're attacking me personally. Uh, Once we're done and we throw you in the car, we're going to have a conversation like you and I are. And what does that do to somebody like that? They're like, why are you talking to me like this? And I'm like, bro, you ain't fighting me. You're fighting the badge. You're fighting the job. You're fighting something. You would probably even like me if you met me outside of work. And that builds that relationship and trust. And what that can do for you as an officer and your community is huge. 
And here's one example of many that I could give you over my career. When I was working gangs, I got caught up with two gangbangers before my uh, cover got there uh, and a fight resulted. Uh, so two against one, tough fight for anybody, you know, and I'm getting to the point where I'm getting very close to I got to shoot somebody because I'm not dying. Another car load of uh, gangbangers come to a screaming halt right in the middle of the road. Four dudes jump out. I'm just ready to start shooting people right turns out they were a rival gang two of those gang members i had previously arrested used force on but we had conversations afterwards so they actually stopped and jumped it out and they beat the hell out of those two other guys they were asking me where my cuffs were i'd lost them in a fight when i was trying to get one of the guys cuffed and everything but you never know what you're going to do to somebody yeah people may be criminals they may be involved in crime and certain stuff but if you can be a decent human being, because ultimately, as a police officer, we sometimes forget is we are there for the people to protect people and to protect people's rights of whether it's your state or the U.S. Constitution. And unfortunately, even that bad guy that you just arrested, they have rights, too. It's a human being. And we need to remember that and we need to stop taking things personal because sometimes us as cops, we're our own worst enemy. Mm -hmm. And then we create situations that continue us to be in a light that we may necessarily be in. I think a lot of that goes to the perspective too, though. You know, if um, obviously when you're hired as a police officer, you're a person, right? Um, but something about you um, makes you exceptional to the point of like, hey, my administration or my governing body sees me as a person that's able to not above the law. That's not what I'm trying to say, but like I'm going to be in charge of the people of this community to take care of their safety. So something about you, right? So that makes you exceptional because not everybody does this, of course, but because of that, the perspective of a gangbanger, this, the perspective of, you know, the guy that you are fighting, the one that is fighting the system may not be readily apparent to you. And that's where we need to be open-minded. I actually just recorded this morning, uh, the closing to an, an episode I put out today where I said that, like, you know, when you're investigating a crime, you're going to be, should be open-minded. If you are responding to a retail theft and the st store clerk is like, Hey, that's the, that's the guy over there that stole whatever. And you go over there and go, Hey man, did you steal this? And he goes, nah. Oh, okay. Have a nice day. No, of course not. You're going to investigate more. You're going to be open-minded. And I think that's where it stops for a lot of us, and that's where it needs to carry over. So when you're dealing with something, when the cuffs come on, you need to be open-minded and start thinking more so like, all right, why was this person fighting? Whether it's because they're fighting the system and, and it's just ingrained in them. What, what did they come up from? And I'm not saying we have to be roadside therapists, but you need to understand what and why you're doing it. And I, I think that, which by the way, just a caveat, we are pretty much roadside therapists in a lot of ways, but I think that takes the personal or the, uh, personalness out of these attacks because they, I mean, I flat out had someone call my name, you know, they saw my name tag on my shirt and said, no, I'm talking to you officer, such and such F you F your family, blah, blah. They try, right? They try to get under your skin because they're trying to evoke a reaction, but it's never personal, but we. It's so easy to forget because if I'm going to come after somebody, it's going to be personal, right? Because I'm not trying to fight the system. I've never had to try to fight the system. So we need to take our preconceived notion and our prejudice, right? And prejudice can be something not skin related, not uh, 
economic class related, just our prejudgment. We got to take all that out and be like, all right, what is actually going on here? You're hitting the, the nail on the head there with a lot of things. Uh, what I get frustrated is eventually, you know, and I've been around long enough that, you know, cops generations before me and generations after me. Um, what I'm proud to say, people will tell me, hey, you're really cool for a cop. And I laugh and I'm like, I'm not a cop. They're like, what? It just totally throws people off. I'm just a guy doing a job. Mm -hmm. And sometimes as cops, you said that we uh, and we should be held to a higher standard. But because we're held to a higher standard doesn't mean we're better than the people that we protect. Correct. And sometimes we get this elitist attitude and we forget that. Right. So that will close your mind off as well. If you feel you're better than somebody, you are going to treat them different or lesser. So we got to recognize that. So 90, and I don't have exact studies numbers, but uh, right in front of me, but 95% of our crime is committed by what? Approximately five to 7% of our population. So that means the majority of society is good. Now, as an officer, you should be prepared at any time to deal with that's the section that you have to deal with. But stop being so defensive to everybody. Get out there in your community. Get out there and do things with them. And not just because it's a cool thing to do. It's much more valuable for you. Um, besides not only somebody saving my life, uh, when we were working gangs, when we would go into, we'd have homicides and our detectives would go in there. Nobody would talk to them. And they'd actually call for me and my partner, uh, call us in on overtime just to go in there and talk because we had trust in communities that people didn't have trust. In the current position I am, I don't want to say what I do necessarily because I could give where I work or a lot of stuff away. But um, there's a lot of attention coming in on our department's social media. It's from people even that I arrested 20 years ago that deal with this issue of I never felt like uh, even if he did X, Y, and Z, whether I used force or whatever, uh, I actually listened to him. Just mm -hmm. listen to people. I investigated over 2,000 cases as a detective. I got more confessions than most people on our department ever had. And the reason why is because I sat down like you and I are doing and we have conversation, right? I used to hate the term interrogation or interview. And I'm like, I'm just going to go talk to somebody. I'm mm -hmm. just going to go talk mm -hmm. to somebody. And we would sit down and have that conversation. And some of the prosecutors, uh, friends of mine would laugh because they're like, dude, it's just so bad because you sit somebody down and you guys have this conversation. And it's almost like they forget you're a police officer. And then once that occurs, then we can be real about stuff. And they may lie a little bit here and there. But again, it goes back to what it, you said earlier was the open mind, just having an open mind and hearing what they're saying and not being so dogged on, hey, this person stole. Okay, well, one, I need to prove that. Two, even with a confession, uh, you're going to have evidence to substantiate what they're saying is true. And to get that, you need to do a complete job and thoroughly listen to something and then examine stuff. And like earlier, you talked about, oh, this person stole because of X, Y, and Z. Why did this occur? If you understand why it occurred, maybe you can help that person out. Maybe you can't. Uh, one of the failures that a lot of people are seeing right now um, with the gentleman with uh, alcoholism that you were talking about earlier, right? 
the courts cannot order somebody to get clean. Mm -hmm. You cannot. I hate the TV show intervention. You cannot do an intervention and somebody's magically going to get clean until the point in their life they've hit that stage and they want to make it. They want to succeed. That's where you'll see the success coming from people. And uh, I've been involved in thousands of drug related arrests, thousands of people involved with drugs. And that's, and I'm not a scientist or psychologist, but that's just from my experience is until people actually want to better themselves, like your homeless individual did there with you, uh, that's not going to happen. So mm -hmm. we can try to force stuff down people's throats all day long but maybe we inspire them i had some people recently that did some stuff with me and uh they actually talked to our news media about the only reason they were clean and sober and the ability to get their kids back was when i put them in prison which they went to prison for a while on some stuff that i did uh they continually thought about some of the stuff that i shared with them from where i came from and here they are, I think, six years clean and sober, got their kids back. Uh, their kids are happy. Uh, stuff like that's nice to see, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I was um, – you're talking and I was, I was thinking about some of the cases I worked. And where I worked, we had, a, we had a pretty bad homeless population, which I feel like if you're in any kind of medium to large size city, that's just kind of comes with the terms – comes with the territory at this point. But – with that, with one of the units I was a part of, we were tasked with kind of mitigating the, the homeless situation. And my sergeant was much more narcotics minded, so he tried to make, attack it from narcotics usage and, uh, and sales and distribution. And so there was this one group, uh, boyfriend and girlfriend, and they were always getting in trouble with stealing and breaking into things because they were trying to fuel their habit. And I remember arresting the female getting her on a drug charge, uh, a distribute had, I had the distribution charge kind of in my back pocket, but we never did anything with it. And I remember she was on probation from a different case we had on her. And I, w I was surveilling her. She got out of my line of surveillance. I didn't have anyone else on a tail with her or whatever, but she ended up overdosing. And I was like, of course she did. But that was a, vi so I go to the hospital, I go to talk to her. And I was like, you know, it's a violation of probation, right? You're not supposed to use illicit drugs. So, you know, because in Florida, you can't, if someone gets um, Narcan, you can't arrest them for the possession of that narcotic. So I was like, you're not going to catch a charge for having the dope on you, but you are going to violate your probation and you're going to go to jail for, for that, for the original charge we had on you. And, you know, but I sat down with her and I, it wasn't even that, that wasn't the ultimatum I was trying to explain to her. I was trying to say like, listen. Narcan got you this time, right? Narcan's got you the last time. Narcan's got you a couple times now. There's going to come a point where Narcan's not going to help you. You know, one reason or another, the guy you were, or the person you were doing with um, is going to leave you or whatever, and you're going to, you're going to die. And I was like, at that point, I wasn't really open. I, I was open-minded, obviously, but I wasn't trying to, I, I didn't understand that an addict needs to want to change an addict, right? So I was like, listen, you know, I'm not, we don't, I, I think I even said, I was like, we don't pick on you and your boyfriend because we, we get our rocks off trying to whatever. But I know that if you're in jail for the night, that's a one night you're not doing drugs and whatever. Right. Then I moved. I don't work there anymore, but come to find out that she's now a prostitute. He is dead, you know? So like kind of exactly what I was picturing for these people, unfortunately. Um, but I have seen a lot of times, uh, where you have someone who's addicted to drugs and, 
and they finally decide that, hey, I'm done. I'm, I'm getting clean and sober. I don't want to live this way anymore. And actually, when you said that, it, it dined, dimed on me that I have spoken to someone from Washington before. And this person um, was social media uh, famous, so to speak, for her before and after photo of uh, – her mugshot when she was really in the thick of it. And now she's a, a college graduate with her master's degree and all this great thing. And she's doing amazing things. And I was like, that's, that's the power of willpower. And when you decide like enough's enough, but no amount of, of handcuffs and jail sentences and things like that is going to do it. Unless of course it's like a prison sentence or whatever, which I've had that on the show as well. So, you know, that's where you kind of get that. And, and, you think you figure out the why you might be able to, to solve the whole problem, but, um, you know, there's just so much that goes into it. But at the end of the day, like those confessions you were saying, you aren't going to get there if you don't talk to people like a person. Yeah. In fact, I've been actually asked to teach an interview course. Uh, I've taken some, I won't say what names they are, but I've been very disappointed in them. Uh, growing up the way I did, uh, in one of the classes, um, they said we need a volunteer to get tell us a real story and a fake story. Uh, so I share a real story with them of my childhood, right? And then I make up a story that sounds more normal. And so, of course, they tell me that uh, my childhood story was absolutely untrue. And mm-hmm. this made up one was the truth. And I said, that's the problem that I have with your class and your interview tactics is they're not correct because you're taking people uh, – Like even I had another officer when I first got hired would get pissed that I would not make eye contact with him while I was speaking to him. And I said, well, you don't understand. If I make eye contact with you, uh, I'm either getting beat or we're fighting. And so that's what I grew up in. So it was hard to make eye contact. Even to this day, you know, I'm getting close to 50. uh, I still catch myself sometimes looking down in the way just because of that condition. Now am I much better and I recognize it all the time and I've grown since then. But you have early, you know, on, I had these people, oh, you look this way, you do this and that. And I love seeing that there's been uh, psychological studies that show simply that's not true what they were trying to say. And so they took me out in the hall even and were yelling at me that uh, I just am trying to embarrass them. And so I actually had them call my brother and my friend that were there and just gave them the phone. I said, you can ask them about the story. And they collaborated with it. And it was like, Oh, wow. That really happened. I was like, yeah, I've, I've grew up in a pretty unbelievable life with some stuff. And so what I try to tell people when I'm trying to do interviews is do this, go down. Uh, if I taught an interview class, I would tell them, Hey, sit in a group, talk to your group, get to know you stuff, each other. That's very easy, right? Especially if you're a group of cops. Sometimes though, it's uncomfortable because you want to piss and moan about what you've done over your career and this and that. Um, And are you truly getting to know somebody? Maybe, maybe not. But the next step I would do is give everybody a bus ticket, a train ticket, whatever. And I'd say, hey, go ride the bus around town today. And I want you to talk to a few people and get their life stories for me. That's uncomfortable talking to a stranger that you don't know. And that's in police work is a lot of times you're talking to somebody that you don't know or you have this information that you're trying to utilize over them. And uh, not only do police read individuals, those individuals that you're speaking to that grew up, they have instincts that they're reading you. And that makes some cops uncomfortable. So if you're uncomfortable, you need to have the ability to hide that Mm -hmm. and be able to still carry this on. 
Um, and then uh, my final test to pass the class would be that we would go out to a nightclub and you would find somebody that you're very attracted to. And I want you to sit down and I want you to get them to tell your life story. I've had several people that, well, I'm married. And I'm like, I didn't say go sleep with this individual. <laughs> but the reason I want you to go sit down and talk to somebody that you find very attractive to what is that? That's the hardest thing that a human can do because they stumble, they stammer, they think that that person's so attractive, but they want to uh, know more about them. Well, th that's hard now because you're uncomfortable. What are they going to think of me type of thing? And so uh, I've had a few friends that have actually done that. And they're like, that actually helped me improve my interview skills just because now I learned to contain that uncomfortableness and then actually communicate and talk to people. Um, and, and it's not even just uh, I'm not saying my generation's better than your generation because a lot of stuff's done uh, by what we're doing instead of in person and so forth. But uh, society, even our my generation, there's a lot of people that don't know how to just sit down and have a conversation about things with people or just start talking to them and where it can go. And I ride a ferry to and from work every day. And uh, my wife teases me, you get a new ferry friend? I'm like, yep. And she's like, you are always talking to people. And I tell her, well, it's just my way to better myself and what I do. If I learn to communicate with more people in different situations, it makes me one, a better person and two, a better officer. So that's my kind of joke about uh, how you develop your communication skills is just do it. Mm -hmm. it. It may be uncomfortable, but do it. Yeah. I was, um, I was in a narcotics class and they were talking about a higher level narcotics class. And that's basically what they did for uh, undercover training. They would send people to this big mall and there, there, there were different levels that they would have to do. One would be, you know, you have to find your target and whoever it was, which was literally just some random person in the mall. And, you know, you had to follow them and yeah. tail them and stuff like that, uh, who was not part of the study at all. And then the next one was, hey, find someone in that mall and get their life story and things like that. So it's funny that you said that. Real quick, because you just sparked a funny story, if you uh -huh. don't mind me yeah. sharing. No, please. You. So I actually used to teach at undercover school, too, as well. So um, one of the scenarios that we would teach is a gay bar. Uh, there was uh, uh, not he wasn't from my agency. He was from another large agency. We both work for some bigger agencies. So you have to be comfortable in anything when you're working undercover. So you would send cops into a gay bar to have them buy drugs. And what do cops not like? Most cops do not like somebody getting close to them mm -hmm. to begin with. Mm -hmm. And then all my SWAT brothers and sisters out there, you're going to get mad about this. But you take a SWAT member that's been a SWAT member for a long time. They really do not want anybody next to them. Um, so I wasn't even close to his crotch. I was up on his thigh a little bit grabbing him uh, because we want to make you uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And you have to manage and deal with that. And you better not come out of cover for that. Uh, big guy too, man. He picked me up and body slammed me and then pulled his gun on me and identified himself as a police officer. We're like, bro, what the, f excuse my language, but what the fuck are you doing? You just came out under, undercover and I'm still six inches away from your crotch, man. But he was just so uncomfortable. Uh -huh. uh, but he realized at that point that undercover was not probably the best job for him uh, because he couldn't relax mm -hmm. to allow that, uh, that closeness that you may necessarily have. And, um, yeah, we, we had a good time there until we got asked to, uh, one of the, the other guy I was working with, I, I kissed a guy from his department in it and that caused a fight. <laughs> I, uh, so we got limited on, uh, how much touching we could do at that sure, point. Sure, 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 sure. It's like, uh, 
really uh, high stakes gay chicken at that point. Um, I remember when I was, I was the John in a prostitution op once. And that, I mean, that was uncomfortable, you know, getting in the car and first off you're mic'd up. So, you know, everything you're saying is being broadcast to whoever else is on the op. Then you got your, and, and like the Sergeant, that was running the op. He was trying to get, he's like, man, I will buy you lunch if you get them to agree to this, you know, just, just to fuck around. Yeah. And then you yeah. get, you know, uh, for everyone that's thinking about prostitution ops, they are not, none of them are high dollar call girls or anything like that. It is not Julia Roberts and pretty woman. They are disgusting to say at the very least. And I, I think I arrest, we got seven, I think on that operation, but oh, just, you know, talk about being uncomfortable and I'm, I'm not, prude by any sense of the imagination but in that in that scenario definitely uh drew me out of that comfort zone but it comes down to you know you got to be comfortable talking to people and um two things with that one is i was never the john again after that i made sure to i was the case agent on a on an op once and i got i I knew exactly who i was going to get for this this big funny one of my former ftos he's the training sergeant now at the agency i used to work for just hell of a time. Good time. I think he's been on uh, live PD since like, he's just, he's a personality. Um, and, um, so just good times. Right. So, but I just listened to an episode of a podcast, another podcast I'm interested in, or part of the, part of the episode didn't finish it yet, but it talks about gaining charisma and talking to people and being comfortable with it. And they said that one of the easiest things to do with that, when you do your daily interactions, you go to the grocery store, you go out to eat, whatever, say one extra thing, to that person you're interacting with, whether it's the server or the cashier. So, you know, that's obviously, hey, how you doing? Bloop, bloop, bloop. You know, got your card. Say one extra thing that would otherwise be unnecessary. And then see, you know, see how that helps you. It'll it'll help you get uncomfortable. Another video I saw on like TikTok or Instagram reels, it was a TikTok though. It was like, oh, just start going to restaurants and asking them for 15% off on anything. Like, hey, you know, whatever the bill is, hey, can I get 15% off? And either you're going to get comfortable with hearing no, which I think that's everyone's biggest fear is, you know, the negativity or the, the rejection, or you're going to get 15% off. So it's, it's, you know, it's a win-win, whatever. So just little tricks of the trade to, to get comfortable with being uncomfortable in, in interpersonal situations. Yeah, actually, my wife gives me a bad time because I negotiate even at Costco. So, <laughs> um, but it, it, you're 100% right. Is if um, I've been asked to teach uh, currently in the field that I'm working, I've been asked to teach a couple different classes. And one of the things that you, in my position, I have to be very engaging, right? And um, I could tell you to be engaging, and you're engaging at your level, right? My joke is that, hey, I'm crazy, man. I am way out there as far as, you know, uh, engaging. In fact, I did an event uh, yesterday with two brand new officers that were just sworn in. And uh, they were sitting down, I don't know, three hours into it. And uh, when we're all said and done, they're like, I'm tired from just watching you, the way that you interact with our community, the way you're doing this, the way you're doing that. And uh, am I physically and mentally exhausted when I do those? A hundred percent I am. I get home and I just pass out because it's a lot to be on all the time. Uh, My joke with my wife is that at home, I'm very introverted. Uh, I like to do stuff with my kids, my family, that's it. Uh, But at work, I am a a, a character, right? And my character is to bring hope and trust and safety to a community and inspire people. 
Um, but that is exhausting being on all the time. And, um, and so it does take a toll on you. It does take a lot of energy to do that. Uh, the second thing, too, is I know some people listening, they're like, oh, is he safe while he's doing it? I'm 100% safe. And that's why it's so exhausting because you're in these certain communities and your head is still on a swivel constantly, but you're doing so much when you're engaging and uh, it physically and mentally wears you out. Um, but anything you could do to uh, get your energy up, uh, your personality out there, uh, it, it's a positive for policing. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it reminded me years ago before I was a cop, I was a substitute teacher and I took a class one day or I was teaching a class one day. It was kindergarten and I was only there for an hour and with kindergartners, you know, you have to be 100% engaging all the time. You have to, um, they have, they, you have their undivided attention. You are it, you are mother goose. And in that one hour I was just covering, I went home and I was like, holy crap, I am exhausted. That was so much energy. Um, I couldn't imagine doing it six hours a day, let alone for 30 years. Like that is just mind boggling. So big hats, big, my hats off to kindergarten teachers, but it's kind of, it sounds like the same idea of like you being on all the time when you're doing your job and being engaging in the community. It's the exact same idea. Just, you know, instead of being, you know, kindergarten age, it'd be, you know, a wide cross section of the, of the community. Yeah, hundred percent. In fact, uh, Mondays we're talking about kindergartners. I had just worked a ten and a half hour day, and then they had a community event they wanted me to go to, and it was an opening of a new gym. Well, for kids, I didn't realize that it was going to be uh, three hundred kindergartners, mm. and so uh, I spent three hours extra. So ultimately, it was a thirteen and a half hour uh, day plus my commute. Uh, but yeah, they I, I, kids are fun, man. But they they sure wear you out. Man. Oh yeah, absolutely. And um, I did our officer friendly reading program or something when I was a rookie or a little, little after that. And that was same idea. You know, you, you try to keep their attention and they don't care about what freaking book you're reading to them. They're way more interested in all the shiny things that are on your, on your uniform and things like that. But that was, yep. that was definitely a, a, a task for sure. Uh, Danny, this has been a great conversation, man. I think we really kind of got a great idea of how, your upbringing formed you to be this police officer that you are today and how you have been your entire career. I think the the biggest takeaway that I got from it is that you're not your past. You're not forced to live in your past and be who you were brought up to be. You can kind of change that path. And, and the, the way that you basically said to your father, like, you know, I don't, you know, you don't apologize because you taught me what not to be. Um, I think that's the biggest thing because like I said in the very beginning, we we have options in that case. We could be like what we were brought up or we could just be the exact opposite or something in between. But the those of us that endure terrible things and choose to be the exact opposite of that um, is the most important thing. So my hat's off to you. Do you have any kind of words of insight to anyone who may be listening who either came from a similar upbringing or maybe someone who is currently dealing with a similar upbringing that may have found the show what kind of insight would you say to them about like not letting your past be your future uh in fact i just had a, this conversation with a kid at a transit center uh he was 13 years old and his grandma's raising him and i told them that uh just because somebody can birth you whether it's a man or a woman that uh, had sexual intercourse to have a child. That doesn't make them a parent. 
all right? And if you look at all reality, how long are your parents part of your life? 16 to 18 years old, maybe. And so don't let them impact the rest of your life. And it's been so hard. I mean, I seceded out of it. I broke the cycle and it is not easy to do. Uh, find different people, different friends outside of that. Uh, just find the inner you and hope. And um, I ain't gonna lie, I still struggle with stuff. Uh, that's why I still go to therapy a lot. And mental health awareness, I know that you're really big on that. And maybe we talk about that at a different time, but there's, uh, you know, so much there. Be strong. You can be two options is what I tell people is you can be a victim the rest of your life or you can be a fighter and survivor. Be that fighter and survivor. Uh, life's going to kick you and it's going to knock you back to it. I remember uh, even after I became a police officer, uh, I went through a, a really nasty divorce and I grew up in a trailer and then I remember sitting outside, I was now living in a trailer again and everything was frozen and I'm trying to get it unfrozen so I could shower or drink. And I just remember sitting there crying that my life had come full circle again. And now I'm back living in a trailer with nothing. But again, my motivation and desire to, I had a lot of people tell me I couldn't do things in life. So uh, I found that motivation to, uh, I love proving people wrong. And that's my whole goal. So just be strong and uh, life is what you make of it mm -hmm. and uh, go from there. And if you don't mind, too, I have some tips for some younger officers or officers in the field right now, too. As well. Yes, absolutely. Please. So right now you're seeing this uh, uh, policing where uh, there's a lot of people that are leaving policing, right? Or uh, I hate to say it, but quiet quitting or not being as active as they were in policing roles. Uh, this is what I challenge stuff. Remember, a lot of people ask, well, what about morale? Uh, how are you so positive after all these years? Well, morale is something that you create. Do not let things impact you that you have no control over on the outside. So if you don't have control over it, you have control over yourself. So create your own morale. Secondly, as most cops will tell you, why did you become a cop? Can you tell me why you became a cop real quick? To help people. I think that's probably the... 100%, right? Yeah, that's what everyone's so, going to say, yeah. Yes, and if that is a true statement, if that is a 100% true statement, then right now it is more dangerous. I mean, I don't know in every state, in my state, uh, it's more dangerous for society right now because a lot of things that are happening. So if you are quiet quitting are leaving this profession because the rules changed. You did not become a cop to help people. Mm -hmm. And you'll get this argument, well, I just can't help anybody anymore. That is not true. If you are there to help people, your box has changed. You do everything you can in that box to still help people. In 25 years, there is a lot of things that have changed in policing. Um, the recent changes, okay, yeah, it's just another change. So. Remember why you became a police officer. You are there to help people. And if that's a true statement, get out there and help people. And don't let things get into your head that you have no control over. So that's just the best tip and advice that I can give. If you're truly a cop to help people, uh, keep helping people. You know, mm -hmm. um, you know, I still work patrol. 
Uh, I think last month I did 60 hours of patrol uh, for minimum crew. And I'm not even a patrol officer, um, but I've always stayed the ability to go work patrol because that's how much I love working in the community. So uh, just keep that in mind and find something uh, that gives you faith and hope in this profession. It is a good profession. It breaks my heart that some people feel that it's not. Uh, second thing is, too, I hear a lot of people say that uh, – I need people to, you know, we don't have respect anymore. Our profession doesn't have respect. If you're in policing to have respect of somebody, you are, you got to rethink your life because police really have had very little respect given to you by people. You got to remember, you responded to people on their worst day. People don't call call 911 and say, hey, I'm having a real good day. Can you come hang out? You respond to people in their worst times. Mm -hmm. And so if you expect respect uh, instantly because of a job that you do, uh, rethink about that. Earn the people's trust, earn their respect, and go on there. So sorry, that was my little soapbox. Nope, nope, absolutely. I, I appreciate it. And I think that a lot of people in the profession get confused about all that Um you know, it is a service industry and we're of service to the people. And I think that gets confused a lot and it gets frustrating. And, and with any job, you're going to have frustrations and the highs and the lows. But I, I really appreciate someone with, with your amount of experience to kind of say that like, yeah, it, it's going to happen no matter what, you know? And I think everyone kind of gets this idea that, oh, policing needs to be this way and realize that, no, it, it's very fluid, and that's how it's really supposed to be. And last year, we I had an episode where we went through and talked about the Pelian principles of policing and basically saying, like, hey, this, this is how it's supposed to be, right? And those are from those are principles from, you know, hundreds of years ago, and they still hold true today. People just distort it to what they want, think they want it to mean, and it's really not the case. And so I, I do really appreciate uh, your insight on on that topic as well. Um, yes, we're definitely going to have to link up again and we can talk mental health and we can talk all that. Uh, to kind of go back to what you said before that is that I did a talk, well, of our recording this. It's going to be two weeks from now, but of releasing it, it'll be this past weekend. Uh, I'm doing a talk with a first responder law enforcement support group. And basically the whole theme of it is hurt people, help people. Basically that you're not your past, you are your future. So just, um, I don't know if it's going to be recorded or not, but I'll try to share that along as well. Um, to wrap up the episode today, I've got 10 questions that I want to run by you. These are kind of open-ended, um, just kind of get people thinking and see how you think about it as well. Uh, so the last one. So I, I, I feel like, I feel like I'm on Bravo TV with Andy Cohen now at the final after Vanderpump Rules. We're gonna throw the questions at you. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. Yes, this is like the uh, inside the actor studio. These kind of things. Yes. Um, yeah, let's go for it. What's the best book that you've read recently? <laughs> so uh, you're gonna think this is kind of funny. So I'm not the smartest guy. I uh, don't read that well, and I actually uh, struggle even pronouncing some words. Uh, so. I read graphic novels as my. Uh, I, I saw what was behind you. I, 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 I read comic books. Okay. So, uh, comic books were my escape growing up uh, from the reality that we had, and um, so all I read is comic books. So That's a, a, I, I, not, any, not anything good. 
Okay. Well, I mean, that works for me. In the, I was checking my bookshelf. I don't have them up here, but I do have a box full of graphic novels and, and things like that. So I definitely, I mean, I saw, I saw behind your head, I saw the superheroes and I was, I was trying to see what they all were as you were talking at one point. So definitely yeah. cool like that. Um, at one point, so how I got into comic books, this is something that I'd never talk about on here, but sure, let's go for it. I got into comic books. I, I just saw, <clears throat> excuse me. I just saw the dark Knight in theaters and I was, yeah. I was so in love with it and I needed more. And I was like, I was talking to a buddy of mine. I was like, I need more. Like I need, I need more. And he's like, "There's literally thousands of comic books. Go get them and, and dive in." And I was like, "Where do I start?" He goes, "Just grab one and do it." So I did. I got hooked. And then uh, I had a pretty bad eBay problem for a while because I would just keep going and buying these boxes of, of uh, different comic books. And and then I was like, "Oh, I can I can buy the whole thing in a giant graphic novel and that like <laughs> save." So that's what I did. And I, I I had to stop myself because it became such a problem. But they're they're in the garage right now. So. I definitely, uh, I definitely understand. What would you say is your favorite comic book or or uh, set of stories? Uh, so my favorite is Green Lantern by far. Uh, Hal Jordan with well power, you can do anything. Uh, and so I always wished I was Green Lantern growing up. Plus, uh, you know, because uh, it's just I've always lived my life with the willpower. You can do anything. Uh, of course, your guests can't see me, but I'm actually heavily tattooed. I have both my arms done and superheroes uh, that took me six years to find the right guy to even do it. Uh, one arm, I got all heroes. The other arm, I got all villains. It's my yin and yang and my reminder of where I came from. I'm no better than anybody else. And I could have easily been on either one of these arms. That's awesome. I, I I like the idea behind it. I like the thought process behind it. Actually, now that we're talking, now that I'm now that my mind's in this place, I've got uh, a Batman patch up here on my patch wall. It's a uh, it's a Thin Blue Lion. It says Night Stalker on it, but it's the Batman uh, Batman logo as well. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. I bought a um, Kevin Smith did a whole run of uh, Green Lan- or Green Arrow comics a um, long time ago, and it is my goal to get to go to a comic-con one day that he's at and i can get him to sign issue one that's that's like that's my that's my goal at one point so that'd be cool uh, yeah that'd be cool. um all right so the next question i got for you what is something you do to ground yourself uh to ground myself at work or at home um at home or just um, just personally so, in general uh just personally in general i just i i reflect on where i came from a lot of times and um i have friends from all walks of life uh even, um, you know, I think it's important to know people that aren't the same as you, uh, whether that be the social economic status to religion, to race, uh, gender, everything. Um, right now, it's sad that we see society. If you don't agree with me, I hate you. Uh, I just don't. My mind just does not understand or comprehend that. Mm-hmm. And so to keep grounded, I mean, I talk to anybody and everybody. Uh, even if I've been in our office too long, I go into some of our most challenged areas and I get out of my car and go walk around and just talk to people. Uh, and that's the same on the outside of my life. I like to help people. I also, to help me keep grounded, um, like I cut down a bunch of trees here. Well, I didn't cut them down, but they shredded them up to bark. Uh, I still do a lot of physical labor. One, it helps me keep in shape. And then two, it's also good for the soul to just, you know, put my music in and uh, just escape everything that's around me. And um, and then, uh, yeah, I just I like being outdoors a lot of different things. I hike a lot in Washington. We have a ton of great hiking, uh, but a lot of activities uh, to include working out. Uh, 
working out and uh, diet, which my diet kind of sucks, but uh, are, are really key to help keep you grounded in, in that good headspace. Nice. Very good. What is something that you do for self-care? Uh, self-care. Uh, I work out. Uh, well, like I shared with you, I ride the ferry to work every day. I run three to five miles every day before I go to work. And then on the weekends, uh, some of my wife and I's best time, we go to the gym, even if we're not necessarily working out super hard, we're there just having fun. That's good. That's good. It's good that you can include her also in your, in that activity as well. Yeah, she she's actually she's actually the strong one in this relationship. So, <laughs> no, I, uh, yeah, I definitely understand that. Sure. Yeah, uh, would you open up an envelope with your death date written inside? Uh, would I do that? Yeah, because I think everybody. I, I think that uh, you know, there's a plan for us all, and if it's our time, it's our time. Uh, whether I die as an old man or tomorrow I walk across the street and get wiped out by a bus, so mm-hmm. you know and. Uh, uh, I guess if I had that date, I'd make sure that I lived my life as full as possible from even if it was just one day, we'd go for it. Yes. And and that's my take on that too. I've had, I love hearing people's take on that. And a lot of them's like, no, I want to be surprised or the, you know, I don't want to, I think I'd be uh, anxious about it. And I'm like, but if you know that that's the day, wouldn't you take that time? Cause I mean, that's kind of how we are supposed to live life anyway, right? Like live life like you're going to live, going to die tomorrow. So if you knew the day, then you can't procrastinate on nothing. You know, that's, that's exactly, that's my take on it. That's how, how I would be as, as, as well. Also my, my, my hey. other, oh, I was just going to say my cynical side of it is like, if I know that's the day I'm taking every risk up to that point. Cause I know nothing else is going <laughs> to take me out. So yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and you touched on a key thing there that, uh, I have some, uh, people that I work with that are friends and friends of mine that, uh, they're like, you have way too much fun in life. And I'm like, what do you mean too much fun? I, I don't want to croak or be crippled and uh not be able to do anything and really think about oh i wish i would have done this Mm -hmm. uh in 2016 i broke my neck in the line of duty and i've really struggled with uh keeping active and continuing to do this job uh because i'm in constant pain from it but i I always think of it this way at some point uh, i hope it's not that i won't physically be able to do stuff um so yeah i want to do it now why would you not do it now you're always if you're waiting to do something don't do it go out and do it because like uh you just said you don't know. Maybe you'll never have that chance. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I saw a post on Instagram not too long ago, probably earlier this week. Um, it said the average retirement age is 55. The average death age is 65. So you're going to work your whole life to live for 10 years and then croak now. And my dad, uh, he was in his 70s when he passed away, but he worked until he was like 60 something. So, no, I'm not I'm not going to take that chance. You know, he worked 26 years and post retirement only really got to enjoy nine of it before he got really sick. So no, I'm going to do what I can to enjoy it while I can. And, you know, that's kind of here, you know, it's kind of like, uh, with money and savings and stuff like that. Like, what are we, what are we saving this for? You know, uh, I was in a play when I was in, in high school, you can't take it with you. You know, you can't take your money with you. So, um, 
there's a country song. It's something like, I've never seen a hearse with a trailer hitch, you know? Like, <laughs> so, and that's where it's like, I'm way more interested in experiencing things. You know, I, I for yeah. a long time, people say, what do you want for Christmas? I'm like, I don't want anything. Like, if you want to go do something with me, that's what I want, you know? So that's that's how I uh, I feel. And, you know, having fun, experiencing life, things like that. So I, I, I appreciate your take on that. Would you be friends with yourself? Uh, I would. I would. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why I, I, my, my wife and her friends uh, and some of my other friends, they uh, tease me all the time. They're like, you just scream, be a friend. Like we, <laughs> we travel to Vegas all the time. We go probably five times a year and we travel with another couple. Uh, the couple that we're traveling with, uh, he's a head prosecutor of a, a county in the state. And then um, his uh, wife is a, a nurse and they love to travel with us for the simple fact, for some reason, people just want to talk to me. <laughs> and so we make a ton of friends down there and we always have fun. Yeah, that's that's good. And I could just I could tell from this conversation and, and the conversations leading up to today how you, you are very personable and you just I, I, could, I can see that very much as well. And, and that makes sense why you're having these these uh, communication classes and teaching people how to talk to to different people. So it all, it all kind of goes hand in hand. It coincides. Uh, what do you I want? I can be a dick, though. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Can't I, we all? I, I've, I've, been, I've, I've been told that. They're like, God, you can really be a dick sometimes. I'm like, oh, sorry. <laughs> it's, it's that yin gotta, and yang, people right? Gotta, people got to experience that, right? Yeah, so. absolutely. Uh, what do you want from other people? Uh, I want to, from other people to stop this hatred of people, get to know your people around you, a step outside your zone and your comfort zone. I have a transgender son who's 21 years old. Uh, when he shared with me that he was transgender, uh, I cried and he's like, dad, are you mad? And I'm like, no. He's like, why are you crying? I said, well, cause I know what this world's going to do to you. And unfortunately, right after this occurred, his own mom disowned him. And so to just have hatred for people because they're different from you, uh, whether it's their values, uh, whatever it is, um, you can still get to know a person as a person and an individual. I would just love to see people coming together, you know, and uh, getting to know people. Um, you know, as a police officer, uh, I get a lot of death threats as a white officer, which, you know, I'm like, hey, man, you don't want me judging you. Why are you judging me? You know, and I just wish that people would just stop judging. Uh, we were out at Wrestle at a WWE event here recently. And uh, a younger kid in their teens uh, told me, hey, why don't you move trash? And I started laughing because my wife, I still joke that I'm white trash and it makes my wife so mad. And I'm like, what do you think I do for a living? And they go, I don't know, uh, work in a ditch or something. And then they had a sibling with them and I asked their sibling, well, what do you think I do? And they're like, uh, maybe a tattoo artist. And I was like, no. So I showed him a picture of me in uniform. I had just created a kid uh, from Indiana a birthday card because he's disabled and wants to be a police officer. But uh, his dad was sharing that he would get patches and coins. I had a cool picture that had my tattoos featured in it. So I made him a birthday card out of it and sent it to him. So I showed them that picture and their face just dropped. And my wife has never experienced being shit on because of where you come from, what you are. And she's like, aren't you so mad about that? And I'm like, no, I don't care. But I just wish we'd get rid of that stuff. Stop judging mm -hmm. people. You never know who you're talking to and what they are or their experiences. And they could be a beautiful person. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that comes back to what we were saying in the very beginning about uh, perspective and open mindedness. And, you know, I think if half the people and I'm I'm even, you know, obviously there's keyboard warriors um, that hate the police and and all that crap. But there's plenty of them on the other side of the spectrum, too, that are like super vocal about, oh, criminals, this and blah, 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 hug a thug, whatever. But if you really had to sit down and speak with someone, you're not going to say half the shit that you had, that you put on mm-hmm. the internet. And it's like, yeah. I think I talked about police cancel culture in a previous episode, but like, we're just as bad as the woke side. We're just mm-hmm. on the other side of it. And mm-hmm. It's like, stop. 100%. And it, it gets so, so frustrating to see it all and, and not, you know, I don't get my rocks off like people send you know obviously i'm a police page so people send me a lot of pro police things and they just automatically yeah. assume i'm ultra right wing which i'm not you know i've always yeah. been very middle of the road but they send me these yeah. things and i'm like i don't care like i don't yeah. you know yeah. there's some things i find interesting don't get me wrong but if they just bombard me with you know uh donald trump speeches or yeah. tucker carlson or whatever and like i'll watch it and everything but what do you what do you want me to say like yeah, yeah you got me brother you found me like no yeah. I, I don't care um yeah. it's just it's just wild it's like can't we like yeah. tucker carlson would never sit down with you know someone that or, or like matt walsh or whoever like all these like very right-wing people and I, I i appreciate the ones that have the good conversations and they actually like you can hear at the end of the conversation that they may have changed from that conversation, but for the most part, they yeah. don't do anything for me because I, I can't stand yeah. closed mindedness. Well, and that's, you're, you're hitting it on the head, right? So much is that, um, sorry, I, I slipped my train of thought. I had a good one there too. No, I you're good. It was good. Um, <laughs> that, uh, Oh, you're right. So you want me to believe your rights and your opinions and force feed them to me. But yet if I give you mine, they're a hundred percent wrong mm-hmm. and you're this evil person and stuff. Why don't we just respect each other's views and rights? Hey, it's okay to be different. Hey, it's okay for you to have that view. Uh, I had a, a kid walk up to me. I was working. Uh, it was newbie and jam. A uh, young black male walks up to me and he has defund the police all over his shirt. And he's like, you hate me, bro? And I started laughing. He goes, you think this is funny? And I'm like, yeah, I do. And he goes, well, why do you think it's funny? I said, I'll hate you. And he's like, well, why not? And I'm like, okay, because my job, one, I'm a human being, and so I don't know you. Right, right. I don't know you, yeah. Maybe you're you're a real shitty person and a horrible person, and if you're that, maybe I don't like you because you're a shitty, horrible person, all right? But because you have this opinion to defund the police, okay, cool, I respect that. You know what my job is, and this is what I shared with him, you know what my job is as a police officer? To protect you and protect you so you can have that opinion and rights. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't offend me. It's not a personal attack on me. Stop ta- Society just needs to stop taking yeah. stuff so personal and get back to getting to know each other, mm-hmm. get to know your neighbor, whatever it is. Right. If, no, no. I, I feel like I had that conversation with a guest recently where like if you, you know, if you spend 20 hours a day reading social media and, and you would think that we are like on the brink of civil war, right? And, and yep. all that other yep. stuff. Then you go down to the local watering hole. And you have yep. a conversation with somebody and, you know, do one of your little uh, conversation tactics, right? Someone you don't know, maybe someone yep. you find attractive or someone that looks different than you. How about that one? Yep. And yep. you'll realize that it's totally not that way. We all think something totally we're, – we're way more even keel than we give ourselves credit for. And um, 
you were telling that story uh, and I was thinking of this one time during the whole George Floyd um, aftermath and I we were we were working a um, demonstration and it was it was peaceful which um, so we're standing and we're basically there was one I think a week prior and someone tried to run up on the curb and hit the protester. So we were standing literally in the road on the curb line. So these people could do what they were doing. And, you know, they did the kneel and they were kneeling for however long it was. And, and they started like chiving at us. Like, why aren't you kneeling? And I was like, it's not my job to kneel. Like I, I can respect everything you're doing here. I could even agree with what you're doing here, but my job right now is to make sure another car doesn't come up on this curb and hit you guys or try to hit you guys or whatever. So my job is to respect your first amendment, right? And that's it. Like, I don't disagree with what you're doing. As a matter of fact, I'm happy you're here doing what you're doing. And that's that. And I, again, going with that closed minded police culture, uh, police cancel culture is like, you know, there's so many out there that would like wave the MAGA flag at one of those. Things. I'm like, stop. We don't need to do that. We don't need to. Or just because it was a cop that got in trouble or a cop that was being uh, chastised, they're already like, no, no, no. The media's wrong. I stop. Did, did you see? Did you watch the video? Like, yeah, I'm sure there's more things going on there, but it wasn't good. Like, so. Yeah. And, and I think just by me saying that, people are. I could see that people listening be like, oh, what what is this? Is he, he stopped being a cop and now he's super uh, left wing or something like that. But. Anyway, not no, the- we're, I'm, I'm going to tell you this as a cop. We are our own worst yes. enemies. And we put our foot in our mouth because we say stupid stuff. We do stupid stuff. And unfortunately, you have to remember this as a police officer is we are all one. So if some dumb shit does something uh, in another state, unfortunately, you're that person for a while until you build that trust back up again. And so and uh you know, some of the stuff that I hear that people are saying and I'm like, and you know, you got a body camera on, you know, somebody's <laughs> recording you. And I'm like, you probably shouldn't be in this profession if you're really that stupid. Correct. If you're letting that emotion don't catch up with you, that somebody poked you that much that you're going to say or react in that manner. I'm like, wow. You know, so uh, we can always change as policing and you should want to change. You should want to grow, you know, just because it was done uh, this way for the past hundred years doesn't mean it's the right way. Correct. Correct. Yes. And we're, we're always evolving. And, and, and again, policing is people, people are the police, you know, and that's what we need to remember. So, um, also, and you can say this in a critical way, but I mean it in any way you want to take it is society gets the police they want, right? So if society wants the police to be hands off, then that's what they get. And if they want them to be more constricting, they will be more constricting. And as the police, right, it goes back to what you're saying. You want to help people, then give them what they want. Like if they don't want car chases, then don't give them car chases. Like that's what they want, you know. And whether you agree with it or not, that's not your that's not your game. You are the you are the player in this. If you want to change the game, there's other ways to do it. And then maybe it's time to think about that. And I've talked to many people uh, in law enforcement that have gone political routes because they weren't happy with the way things were going. Perfect. That's how you affect change. But being the street cop and, and, you know, being that rogue, oh, I'm still going to do car chases. I'm still going to, you know, uh, push over corner, corner boys and stuff. Stop. That's not the way we do that. That's how you get jammed up. And that's how you look like an ass. 100%. Uh, the next question I have for you. What sort of impact are you looking to make and how do you make it? 
Uh, so the impact that I'm always looking to make is inspire people, bring trust, the stuff that I did not have in policing when I was growing up. I've always hoped that I have made it. And as I shared earlier, and one of the questions we were talking about is uh, it's very humbling to me. Uh, it actually brings cheers to my eyes, uh, realizing that I have had such an impact on uh, our community and even people, whether that uh, it was a contact uh, to uh, change them. Uh, one quick story that this is very humbling for me. I stopped a kid. I took a pictures with him and all this other stuff. Uh, young black kid, his dad was a gangbanger from Phoenix, Arizona. He was shot twice in one week. This is how deeply he was involved in the gangs. Um, and he absolutely hated police. So I meet his son and his son had this fear too, cause he was young and he sees George Floyd and all this stuff that's happening because unfortunately little kids see stuff on TV and it's, Oh, it's TV. It's a reality. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so he had a fear of policing. Um, now he has a picture of me and him that hangs on his wall above his bed. Mm. Uh, one of the most powerful texts that I ever got from, uh, Anybody is uh, his dad changing that I not only changed his son's views, but his views. And as a black man, he is so proud that his son actually approaches police officers now and talks to them and wants to take pictures because that trust was brought there. Mm -hmm. And it's not only in uh, the black community, the poor community. I just want to bring inspiration to people. I want to be an inspiration to people, whether it is as a police officer or just a human being to inspire people to be better. And I hope that I do that. That's that's great. And, and I really commend you on that story and and it seems like it's just one of many how you seem to impact people that you come in contact with and to know your backstory and again i i don't i don't want to feel like i'm fixating on it but you could have very easily gone another route and the fact that you didn't is uh very remarkable and i appreciate you for that real quick along those lines uh <laughs> been through a lot of therapy and a lot of different therapists so to me uh, even coming on here, I was very nervous because my story to me is just a story, right? And uh, excuse me, uh, but I'm learning to be proud of what I've done. Like uh, the therapists have shared with me is I should be dead or I should be a drug addict, at least an alcoholic or somebody who's abusing their family and not success. And it's hard for me to recognize that a lot of times, but that makes me very proud that somebody can see that in me because I feel like I'm always chasing that I want to be the better person, mm -hmm. you know, uh, from the trauma that I've suffered. So, yeah, so it's. I, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I very easily should have been somewhere else. I think that we get there's there's a theory in psychology about the shadow. And we're always running from the shadow. And um, a couple of the Instagram influencers that I follow, they always talk about killing your clone. And through therapy, we obviously, we learn a lot about our shadow and what we're running from and what we're trying to be better than. And, you know, I, I feel like you've definitely achieved that taken, you know, the thing that could have brought you down, the thing that's always with you. And I, you know, you say you're in therapy, so I'm sure, you know, you've, you're constantly working on coming to terms with your shadow, just hearing your stories and, and seeing your interactions. And obviously, you know, prior to us even conversating, 
you know, saw some of your social media posts and things like that. And it's, it's great to see. And, and I just implore everybody who has kind of been through the shit and going through the dirt. It's so easy to just stay there. And, but it's also, it's a lot of work, but it's so much better to not and to overcome it. So, um, you know, I just, again, want to just thank you for that. I've got a few more questions for you, but I just I yep. wanted to take a second and thank you for it. I'll try not to ramble too much. Uh, how do you define the word friendship? Uh, I define the word friendship. Uh, just so, people that are close to you, that you can trust, and they bring you that warmth, the uh, inner joy. Somebody you can laugh with, somebody you can cry with, uh, somebody you can go through ups and downs with. Uh, that would be friendship to me. Okay, perfect. How do you define the word happy, and what makes you happy? Happy is uh, happy is something you create, and so I, I tell people that all the time because I see them trying to find things to make them happy. Right. Um, so everything that every feeling it should come from within, and it'll be uh, more successful. But happy is just that good feeling that you have right there. But uh, and not saying this because uh, my wife's going to listen to this or something, but uh, she's truly the person that's brought me uh, some of my most happiness in my life and helped me discover that um, just because of where I came from, um, you know, she's my second marriage. My first marriage, uh, you know, ended in a divorce and I got two amazing kids from that. But uh, I really didn't know what happiness was. I didn't know what love was because I never experienced or saw that growing up, right? And to finally experience a true love uh, and that stuff, uh, that just brings me so much happiness. Uh, that and my kids. I mean, uh, I got, we got five kids between us, Brady Bunch family. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just my family just brings me so much happiness, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely does. And the last question I have for you, what is the meaning of life? The meaning of life? I, I have no idea. So to me, the meaning of life is uh, you live life and you enjoy life. And like we talked about earlier in this conversation, you never know when you're going to walk out of the street and you get hit by a bus and it's your time. So enjoy your life and uh, be good to people. I mean, just be good to people around you and enjoy things. Perfect. Perfect. Danny, this has been an amazing conversation. I really appreciate your insight on things, uh, your perspective, really uh, driving home the whole open-mindedness. If anyone has questions if they want to know more about you if they want to know more about talking to people or being comfortable with being uncomfortable in that way is there any way that they can reach you and get in contact with you uh if you don't mind being kind of a caveat with that so we can kind of screen that so uh Unfortunately, you know, I can't be related to my departments uh, with this whole conversation uh, just because the way cities are with Mm -hmm, things. mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately, if you do Google me, I'm out there quite a bit, which would show you where I'm at. Mm -hmm. So So here's uh, what we're going to do. Yeah, if somebody... They can can message me and I'll message you and I'll just be your little little (laughs) go-between. Yeah, I mean, if you do, if you mind that, and I don't even know if people will want to talk to me, but you know, if they do, that's cool. Uh, if they don't, uh, maybe somebody listening today. If you're listening and you're going through whether it's abuse, poorness, whatever you can do, um, be strong. Hang in there. You can do it.
Yeah, and and if you if anyone does want to reach out to Danny, let me know, and I will happily pass the message along. There's been plenty of people that go, especially like even years down the way, they go, "Hey, I just listened to episode, you know, season one, whatever." Uh, is there a way I can get in contact with this person? And you know, it's, so it's it's an honor to me that to bring people to people that want more. You know, so uh, yeah, if that comes out, absolutely, uh, Danny. This has been great, man. I really appreciate it, and we're going to talk really soon. Appreciate you too, Charlie. And in three years and five months, we can be wide open with everything. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Sounds good to me, man. Everyone listen, stay tuned. I'll be wrapping up the show. Danny, we'll talk soon. All right. See you, brother. See you. And a special thanks to Danny for sharing his life story, his experience and thoughts on all those topics. I think that story particularly was one of the most poignant ones that we've had on the show to date. Uh, I loved him sharing it with me because it actually bled into the talk I did with Reps for Responders this past weekend. And it's also my newest wristband, Hurt People, Help People. I'll continue to say it. Your traumatic experiences, your upbringing does not have to be a reason to be a shitty human you can recover big props to danny and all of you warriors out there that are proving that every single day if anyone is interested in more of a talk regarding how not to let the terrible things that happen to you define your present and your future as well as trauma response and more be sure to check out our episode next week with dr elizabeth delery that's right we're bringing her back she and I are going to talk about the science behind trauma and traumatic experiences. It's probably a top five important episodes that you do not want to miss. The recording was great. The information is even better. And uh, yeah, Dr. D is the best. So you got you to gotta check it out. So to wrap up today's episodes, we are going to do our annual reading, uh, the salute to our fallen brothers and sisters. This past week was Police Week in Washington, D.C. So to honor those that we lost in 2022, I will be spending the end of the episode today reading the names of all of those that we've lost. But first, my good friend Tom Rizzo is going to give an amazing rendition of President Teddy Roosevelt's iconic speech, The Man in the Arena. So be sure to just stay tuned after I stop talking because you don't want to miss it. Also, be sure to check out next week, Dr. Elizabeth Dellery and I. We are going to be understanding trauma response. Until next time, take care of each other. Stay safe. Captain Tom Rizzo, take it away. The poorest way to face life is to face it with a sneer. There are many men who feel a kind of twisted pride in cynicism. There are many who confine themselves to criticism of the way others do what they themselves dare not even attempt. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again. Because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. 
But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions? Who spends himself in a worthy cause? Who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement? And who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Police Officer Christopher Gibson, Dallas Police Department, Texas. Detective Joseph Anthony Tripoli, Chicago Police Department, Illinois. Deportation Officer William Haynes, United States Department of Homeland Security, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, Office of Enforcement and Removal Operations. Trooper John Horton, North North Carolina Highway Patrol, North Carolina. Deputy Sheriff Brian Venata, Curry County Sheriff's Office, New Mexico. Police Officer Bart Arnold, Enid Police Department, Oklahoma. Police Officer Jesus De La Luz Chuy Lara III, Casa Grande Police Department, Arizona. Police Officer David Engel, Eola Police Department, Kansas. Police Officer Franklin Joe, Lone Star College System Police Department, Texas. Officer Bruce Eckhoff, United States Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection, Office of Field Operations. Police Officer Richard Lynn Tostenson, Noonan Police Department, Georgia. Captain Reginald Smith, Wilson Police Department, North Carolina. Sergeant Gerardo Morales, El Paso Police Department, Texas. Deputy Sheriff Michael Queenie, Willow County Sheriff's Office, Illinois. Detention Sergeant Janelle Visser, Miller County Sheriff's Office, Missouri. Police Officer 2, Fernando Arroyos, Los Angeles Police Department. Police Officer Diane Gonzalez, New Haven Police Department, Connecticut. Corrections Officer 5, Mark Lowenkin, Texas Police. Texas Department of Criminal Justice Correctional Institutions Division. Police Officer Brian Shields, Aurora Police Department, Illinois. Deputy Sheriff Brian Moore, Sacramento County Sheriff's Office, California. Chief of Police Michael German, Prairie City Police Department, Iowa. Deputy Sheriff Joseph Tinoco, Cook County Sheriff's Office, correction, Cook County Sheriff's Police Department, Illinois. Captain Jeffrey Pierce, Bernalillo County Metropolitan Detention Center, New Mexico. Investigator Stephen Finley, Madison County Sheriff's Office, Alabama. Deputy Sheriff Terrence Bateman, Franklin County Sheriff's Office, Ohio. Sergeant Malik Madzub, Portsmouth Sheriff's Office, Virginia. Corrections Officer Melissa France, Oswego County Sheriff's Office, New York. Detective James Ward, New York City Police Department. Corporal Ernest Robinson, Wayne County Sheriff's Office, Michigan. Police Officer Ramiro Perez, Shallow Water Police Department, Texas. Sergeant Kenneth Thurman, Sr., Aurora Police Department, Illinois. Police Officer Daniel Sanchez, 
New York City Police Department. Chief of Police Don Riff, Jefferson College Police Department, Missouri. Police Officer Kirill Jones, Memphis Police Department, Tennessee. Police Officer Tyler Lenahan, Elk Grove Police Department, California. School Resource Officer Johnny Patterson, Lee County School District Police Department, Mississippi. Detective Jason Rivera, New York City Police Department. Special Agent Anthony Salas, Texas Department of Public Safety. Lieutenant Kevin Pounders, Hansville Police Department, Alabama. Deputy Jailer Gregory Means, Casey County Detention Center, Kentucky. Corporal Charles Galloway, Harris County Constable's Office, Precinct 5, Texas. Sergeant Ramon Gutierrez, Harris County Sheriff's Office, Texas. Detective Wilbert Mora, New York City Police Department. Police Officer Christopher Berry, Vidor Police Department, Texas. Deputy Sheriff John Grampovinick, Alamaki County Sheriff's Office, Iowa. School Resource Officer Travis Hurley, London Police Department, Kentucky. Master Trooper Vince Mullins, Tennessee Highway Patrol, Tennessee. Deputy Sheriff Noah Rainey, Carroll County Sheriff's Office, Indiana. Deputy Sheriff Lauren Redman, Loving County Sheriff's Office, Texas. Police Officer Donald Sahota, Vancouver Police Department, Washington. Senior Correctional Police Officer Robert McCormick, New Jersey Department of Corrections. Master Patrolman William Daniel Kelly, McAllister Police Department, Oklahoma. Sergeant William Shibley, Sebastian County Sheriff's Office, Arkansas. Sergeant Burke Hannibal, Gonzalez County Sheriff's Office, Texas. Police Officer Chris Bardwell, Crossroads Police Department, Texas. Deputy Sheriff LaQuinton Wilson, Jefferson County Sheriff's Office, Texas. Police Officer John Painter, Bridgewater College Police Department, Virginia. Master Police Officer Daniel Nieves, Virginia Beach Police Department, Virginia. Sergeant Arthur Duran, Fowler Police Department, California. Deputy Sheriff Steve Bobbitt, DeKalb Police Department, Alabama. Correctional Officer 3, Helen Smith, North Carolina Department of Public Safety Division of Adult Corrections and Juvenile Justice. Sergeant Chris Jenkins, Loudoun County Sheriff's Office, Tennessee. Captain Colin Burney, Flint Police Department, Michigan. Chief of Police, Richard Leslie Stevens, Union City Police Department, Oklahoma. Deputy Sheriff Brian Norton, Ford County Sheriff's Office, Illinois. Sergeant Robert Miller, Clifton Police Department, New Jersey. Police Officer Leonard Swanson, New York City Police Department. Special Deputy Marshal Jose Gomez, United States Department of Justice, U.S. Marshal Service. Agent John Dale Staybrook, Medina County Drug Task Force, Ohio. Corrections Employee Daryl Avery, Texas Department of Criminal Justice Correctional Institutions Division. Correctional Officer Braxton Hoffman, Lake County Sheriff's Office, South Dakota. Police Officer John Mestis, uh, Double Oak Police Department, Texas. Correctional Officer 4, John Barron Broadway. Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Correctional Institutions Division. Corporal Shelley Godbold, Patego Police Department, Texas. 
Corporal Michael Springer, Arkansas State Police. Deputy Sheriff Aubrey Phillips, Almeda County Sheriff's Office. Corporal John Michael McWhorton, Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, Office of Agricultural Law Enforcement. Correctional Officer V.K. Zeger Jr., Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Correctional Institutions Division. Police Officer Lonnie Sneed, Double Oak Police Department, Texas. Corporal Michael Morgan, Cherokee County Sheriff's Office, Alabama. Sheriff Robert Kraft, Marion County Sheriff's Office, Kansas. Captain Frank Rezac Jr., Carroll County Sheriff's Office, Tennessee. Deputy Sheriff Jarrett Arazi, Washoe Police Department, County Sheriff's Office, Nevada. Corrections Deputy Bridget Hunter, Shelby County Sheriff's Office, Tennessee. Police Officer Nicholas Vela, Huntington Beach Police Department, California. Lieutenant Jason Dumlau, United States Department of Defense, Marine Corps Mountain Warfare Training Center, Bridgeport Police. Sergeant Matthew Horton, Orange County Sheriff's Office, New Jersey. Deputy Constable Neil Adams, San Jacinto uh, County Constable's Office, Texas. Sergeant John Donahue, Fairfax County Police Department, Virginia. Correctional Lieutenant Steve Taylor, Riverside County Sheriff's Department, California. Police Officer Jorge Alvarado Jr., Salinas Police Department, California. Patrolman David Evans, San Antonio Police Department, Texas. Detective Michael Godwin, New Hanover County Sheriff's Office, North Carolina. Sergeant Joshua Caldwell, Arkansas Department of Corrections. Lieutenant Scott Owens, Union City Police Department, Oklahoma. Correctional Officer Jose Ruiz, Texas Department of Criminal Justice Correctional Institutions Division. Deputy First Class Kenny Olander, Frederick County Sheriff's Office, Maryland. Senior Police Officer Robert Eric Duran, Santa Fe Police Department, New Mexico. Trooper Tamar Bucci, uh, Massachusetts State Police. Police Officer David Mathura, New York City Police Department. Correctional Officer Lonnie Johnson, Jr., Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Correctional Institution Division. Corporal Benjamin Cooper, Joplin Police Department, Missouri. Police Officer Jake Reed, Joplin Police Department, Missouri. Police Officer Freddie Wilson, Detroit Public Schools Community District Police Department, Michigan. Police Officer Caleb Oglivy, Covington Division of Police, Virginia. Deputy Sheriff Dominique Calada, Pierce County Sheriff's Office, Washington. Police Officer Lane Anthony Burns, Bon Terre Police Department, Missouri. Sergeant Barbara Fenley, Eastland County Sheriff's Office, Texas. Trooper Martin Mack III, Pennsylvania State Police. Trooper Brandon Siska, Pennsylvania State Police. Police Officer Dan Rocha, Everett Police Department, Washington. Police Officer Jeffrey Carson, Franklin Police Department, Tennessee. Deputy Sheriff Douglas Sanford, Hamilton County Sheriff's Office, Indiana. Investigator Donald Crooms, Houston County District Attorney's Office, Georgia. Major Roderick Covington, New York State Police. 
Police Officer Dominic Francis, Bluffton Police Department, Ohio. Lieutenant William Lebo, Lebanon City Police Department, Pennsylvania. Deputy Sheriff Darren Almendarez, Harris County Police Department, correction, Harris County Sheriff's Office, Texas. Police Officer Trey Sutton, Henrico County Police Department, Virginia. Sergeant Christopher Vaughn, Cedar Bluffs Police Department, Alabama. Deputy Constable Jennifer Chavez, Chavez, Harris County Constable's Office. Patrol Officer Brian Sember, Ottawa Police Department, Illinois. Police Officer Daryl Fortner, uh, Vestavia Hills Police Department, Alabama. Sergeant Pedro Candia, New York City Police Department. Deputy Sheriff James Critchello, Ohio County Sheriff's Office, Kentucky. Police Officer Roy Barr, Casey Police Department, South Carolina. Corporal David Jones, Benton County Sheriff's Office, Missouri. Deputy Sheriff Nicholas Wiest, Knox County Sheriff's Office, Illinois. Sergeant Nicholas Tullier, East Baton Rouge Parish Sheriff's Office, Louisiana. Deputy Sheriff Walter Donald Jenkins Jr., Rockdale County Sheriff's Office, Georgia. Deputy Sheriff Robert Howard, Harris County Sheriff's Office, Texas. Border Patrol Agent Daniel Salazar. United States Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection, U.S. Border Patrol. Chief Deputy Sheriff Jody Cash, Callaway County Sheriff's Office, Kentucky. Police Officer Stephen Plum Jr., Warrington Township Police Department, Pennsylvania. Supervisory Police Officer Yu Tao, United States Department of Justice, Federal Bureau of Investigations Police. Senior Correctional Police Officer Daniel Sinkovich, New Jersey Department of Corrections. Correctional Officer Jay Drennan, Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Correctional Institutions Division. Officer Trainee Cody Olofsson. United States Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection, Office of Field Operation. Lieutenant Mark Pike, Taylor County Detention Center, Kentucky. Supervising Fire Marshal John McCauley, New York City Fire Department Bureau of Fire Investigation. Police Officer Houston Tipping, Los Angeles Police Department. Deportation Officer Brian Turner, United States Department of Homeland Security, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, Office of Enforcement and Removal Operations. Special Agent Peter Egon, United States Department of Homeland Security, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, Office of Investigations. Officer Adrian Lopez Sr., White Mountain Apache Tribal Police Department. Deputy Sheriff Thomas Baker III, Nicholas County Sheriff's Office, West Virginia. Police Officer Christopher Ferriello, Tallahassee Police Department, Florida. Senior Investigator Kyle Lee Patterson, Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Police Officer Kenneth Kroom, Meridian Police Department, Mississippi. Detective Justin Terry, Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, Nevada. Deputy First Class... Glenn Hilliard, Wimico County Sheriff's Office, Maryland. Sergeant Michael Paredes, El Monte Police Department, California. Police Officer Joseph Santana, El Monte Police Department, California. Sergeant Sean Free, Henry County Sheriff's Office, Georgia. Deputy Sheriff Austin Richardson, Fremont County Sheriff's Office, Iowa. Deputy Sheriff Jamar Abel, Chambers County Sheriff's Office, Alabama. Deputy Sheriff Austin Aldridge, Spartanburg County Sheriff's Office, South Carolina. Detention Officer Jeremiah Story, Perry County Sheriff's Office, Arkansas. 
Deputy Sheriff Jeff Hermison, Saunders County Sheriff's Office, Nebraska. Sergeant Richard Lopez, Yavapai County Sheriff's Office, Arizona. Reserve Officer Jeffrey Richardson, Poteet Police Department, Texas. Deputy Sheriff Bradley Johnson, Bibb County Sheriff's Office, Alabama. Captain Ralph Frazier, Prestonburg Police Department, Kentucky. Deputy Sheriff William Petrie, Floyd County Sheriff's Office, Kentucky. Police Officer Jacob Chaffins, Prestonburg Police Department, Kentucky. Sergeant John Williams, Coralville Police Department, Iowa. Police Officer Lauren Quartz, Detroit Police Department, Michigan. Parole Supervisor Ronald Spangler Jr., Pennsylvania Parole Board. Police Officer Brian Olive, Natchitoches Police Department, Louisiana. Under Sheriff Lawrence Corrin, Baranillo County Sheriff's Office, New Mexico. Lieutenant Fred Beers III, Baranillo County Sheriff's Office, New Mexico. Sheriff Deputy Sheriff Michael Levison, Baranillo County Sheriff's Office, New Mexico. Patrolman Vincent Parks. Jonesboro Police Department, Arkansas. Police Officer Frederick Malley, Port Authority of New York and New Jersey Police Department. Police Officer Daniel Vasquez, North Kansas City Police Department, Missouri. Sergeant Christopher Nelson, Edmond Police Department, Oklahoma. Police Officer Anthony Mazuresic, Rochester Police Department, New York. Supervisor, Supervisory Deportation Officer Rachel Vielmas, United States Department of Homeland Security, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, Office of Enforcement and Removal Operations, Deputy Sheriff Matthew Yates, Clark County Sheriff's Office, Ohio, Sergeant Jean Harold Louis Astry, Fairburn Police Department, Georgia, Mounted Deputy Nicole Schuff Blaint, Clare County Sheriff's Office, Michigan, Deputy Sheriff Lorenzo Bustos, Smith County Sheriff's Office, Texas, Deputy Sheriff 2, Jamie Reynolds, Spalding County Sheriff's Office, Georgia, Police Officer Noah Chenavez, Elwood Police Department, Indiana, Deputy Sheriff Dallas Edinburgh, Ramsey County Sheriff's Office, Minnesota, Sheriff Matthew Fishman, Wayne County Sheriff's Office, North Carolina, Special Police Officer Mauricia Manaya, Manion, District of Columbia Public Library Office of Public Safety, Conservation Officer Lawrence Cabana, New York State Environmental Conservation Police, Deputy Sheriff Anthony Peary, El Paso County Sheriff's Office, Colorado, Corporal Chad Beatty, Washington County Sheriff's Office, Pennsylvania, Deputy Sheriff Ned Bird, Wake County Sheriff's Office, North Carolina, Police Officer Cesar Echeverry, Miami-Dade Police Department, Florida, Captain William Hargraves, Osage, Police De- Osage County Sheriff's Office, Oklahoma, Special, Special Agent Jose Perez, Florida Department of Law Enforcement, Police Officer Yvonne Lopez, Mount Vernon Police Department, Alabama, Sergeant Robert Schwartz, Oklahoma County Sheriff's Office, Oklahoma. Sergeant Brent Chomzak, New York State Police. Sergeant Harold Russell II, Tennessee Highway Patrol. Detective Matthew Blansat, Marion County Sheriff's Department, Tennessee. Constable Deborah Martinez Garibay, 
Pima County Constable's Office, Arizona. Correctional Officer 3, Caitlin Rittenauer. Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Correctional Institutions Division. Deputy Sheriff Jonathan Koleski, Cobb County Sheriff's Office, Georgia. Deputy Sheriff Marshall Irvin Jr., Cobb County Sheriff's Office, Georgia. Trooper Cadet Patrick Dupree, Georgia State Patrol. Police Officer Dylan Vakoff, Arvada Police Department, Colorado. Captain Janelle Sanders, New York City Police Department, New York. I said, oh, wow, because she passed away due to 9-11 related illnesses on 9-11 in 2022. Police Officer Lloyd Todd, Detroit Police Department, Michigan. Police Officer Sierra Burton, Richmond Police Department, Indiana. Deputy Sheriff Michael Hartwick, Pinellas County Sheriff's Office, Florida. Senior Patrol Officer Anthony Martin, Austin Police Department, Texas. Master Police Officer Tyrell Owens-Riley, Columbia Police Department, South Carolina. Detention Corporal Gregory Thomas Horn, Sr., Edgecombe County Sheriff's Office, North Carolina. Sergeant Megan Burke, Oklahoma City Police Department, Oklahoma. Major Terry Arnold, Cook County Sheriff's Office, Georgia. Deputy Sheriff Blaine Lane, Polk County Sheriff's Office, Florida. Deputy Sheriff Sidney Carter, Sedwig, Sedgwick County Sheriff's Office, Kansas. Investigator Maisha Stewart, Greenville Police Department, Mississippi. Lieutenant Dustin DeMonte, Bristol County, correction, Bristol Police Department, Connecticut. Sergeant Alex Hamsey, Bristol Police Department, Connecticut. Police Officer Trong Thai, Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, Nevada. Police Officer Stephen Notham, the second, Carrollton Police Department, Texas, Officer Jorge Arias, United States Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection, Office of Field Operations, Sergeant Ivan Morales, New York State Police, Police Officer Logan Medlock, London Police Department, Kentucky, Sergeant Daniel Camerzel, Shelby Township Police Department, Michigan, Lieutenant Christina Zell, Niagara Falls Police Department, New York, Criminal Investigator Stephen Carnes, Tom Green County District Attorney's Office, Texas. Police Officer Brandon Sy, Grand Prairie Police Department, Texas. Marine Interdiction Agent Michael Maceda, United States Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection, Air and Marine Operations. Police Officer Jordan Jackson, Bellevue Police Department, Washington. Deputy Sheriff Christopher Taylor, Charlotte County Sheriff's Office, Florida. Detective Sergeant Frank Gualdino, Yonkers Police Department, New York. Deputy Sheriff Jose DeLeon, Warren County Sheriff's Office, North Carolina. Border Patrol Agent Raul Gonzalez Jr., United States Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection, United States Border Patrol. Reserve Deputy Brad Miller, Maury County Sheriff's Office, Tennessee. Court Services Officer Curtis Warland, Alaska State Troopers. Senior Corrections Officer Scott Reiner, Gwinnett County Department of Corrections, Georgia. Police Officer Brandon Paul Estorf, Bay St. Louis Police Department, Missouri. Sergeant Stephen Robin, Bay St. Louis Police Department, Missouri. Sergeant Donald Scobie, Stuggart Police Department, Arkansas. Deputy Sheriff Daniel Kinn, Wyandotte County Sheriff's Office, Ohio. Deputy Sheriff Oscar Avanska, Jr., Cumberland County Sheriff's Office, North Carolina. Chief of Police Joe Carey, Brodnax, Police Department, Virginia. 
Detective Paul Newell, Benton County Sheriff's Office, Arkansas. Deputy Sheriff Corey McElroy, Garrett County Sheriff's Office, Maryland. Corporal Ray Hamilton, Okaloosa County Sheriff's Office, Florida. Deputy Sheriff Isaiah Cordero, Riverside County Police Sheriff's Office, California.